Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. We have Kenna back. Yay, Yay. I'm back. I missed you. Aw, I missed you too. It was very, very hard doing the podcast without you. Oh, I'm so sorry, you know. Uh, life man yeah <laughs> um but you're here now and you know I tried to do an episode while you were gone and it was about fast fashion but it was sad and lonely <laughs> and then I made David my friend guest host last week um, and we talked about the paranormal hell yeah and that was a little bit better and we didn't even <laughs> fight once we got into zero fights can you believe that oh my goodness but it was not the same without you Aww. so we haven't had a chance to recap this yet Um, because I was in New York when it happened and then you were out, but something huge happened at the federal government level within the past few weeks. Oh, yes. Kenna, what is it? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, you mean Roe v. Wade? Roe v. Wade. We haven't talked about it. Fucking crazy. It's wild. It's shocking. Um, and we are fortunate enough to live in California where our abortion rights won't be compromised unless there is a federal ban on abortion. But obviously what this means for lots of people in the rest of the country is super scary. Yeah, it's fucked. It's super fucked. And we know, obviously, that it will disproportionately affect poor people and people of color who already bear the brunt of increased judicial monitoring in their communities and also cannot probably afford to just hop on a flight to a state like ours to access reproductive health care for the poor for the poor people anyway. Yeah. Um, so they're just kind of stuck. And in the U.S., we know that 73% of people who seek abortions do so because they cannot afford to have a baby. Yeah. It's a big reason. And these abortion restrictions mean that wealthier people with more access to resources and less experiences with over-policing, they will have the option to make more financially sound decisions regarding reproduction. But those who are not able to afford the trip out of the state to another place now have to face additional costs that are even more expensive. So it's like, it's like a rich getting rich and poor getting poorer thing. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many other things on top of this. Like, to me, it's just like the first in a row of, like, conservative dominoes where it's, like, they're going to come after, like, LGBTQ plus rights. Like, they're going to come after, like, a but like, like, so, like, just, like, to me, it's, like, not just, like, body autonomy. It's about, like, you're, like, what are, your personal freedoms, basically. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be for us, because we're old enough to remember it, it's going to be, like, Clinton and W. Bush era, yeah, um, yeah, like the G dub. Yeah, G W. It'll be the G dub era that we're living through again. Because which is like, scary. which was wild to me because like I think about it before and I was just like, yeah, it was like, it was like, yeah, it was kind of scary. I mean, it was yeah, it was like really, even though like, you know, you know, in America you're supposedly freedom of speech, whatever. It's like it's. No, we don't really have that much freedom. That's just, like, our tagline. It's not, like, the actual. Like, we get freedom of speech, and you're like, wait, so that means you can just do whatever? (laughs) But you can't. You you can't can't do whatever. No. uh, Also, like, if you follow anybody, like, on Twitter who's, like, on the more radical end, they always post when they get, like, letters from the federal government about their, what they've been saying on the internet, where the federal government's like, hey, we're monitoring you. Like, you can't just say this shit. Or, like, they show up at people's houses, like, Department of Homeland Security showed up at people's houses to, like, um, tear things apart and, like, in- interrogate oh, them just because geez. of something they said on the internet. So it's, like, even our freedom of speech is a mess. Ugh. It's wild. Um, but, yeah, like, as for the birthing thing, like, Going back to, like, the money thing and just what it means financially, where, like, the people who are 
most affected by this are poorer people and people who are subjected to over-policing, which is usually people of color. But, like, the people who have money, abortion will still be legal for them, basically. Yeah, I was reading somewhere, um, basically, that um, overturning Roe v. Wade will only decrease abortions by 13%. Wow. Because people, like, who have, uh, who, who have more, like, economic privilege or whatever will have always been able to get abortions you know right exactly like, you know you think about back in the day when like movie stars would go on a trip to mexico exactly. or like go on they're like i went to the bahamas yes like it was and you knew you you knew what they were doing so <laughs> right and now they can come to california and get their abortions the yeah, rich people so, from other places yeah so it's like it's really only going to hurt like disproportionately like poorer people people of color like it's you know and that was that's what blew my mind is that it would it would only decrease like if that is your goal to decrease abortions it's not even doing a good job no it's definitely not doing a good job like what we know is like access to contraception and like sex education in school like that decreases people's needs for abortion yeah and like to, to me it's like I, I could go on but it's like it's not about that it's just controlling other people's bodies yeah exactly so like we know giving birth is a costly procedure here in the u.s right like um do you know how much it costs to give birth you know i isn't it like thirty-five thousand or something okay that's what i thought but maybe that's just because we're in california but the average national cost for a vaginal delivery is thirteen thousand dollars oh and the average national cost for a c-section is twenty two thousand dollars oh so the median savings account balance in the united states just for contrast is forty five hundred dollars for the record so you still couldn't comfortably afford yeah because because like okay you pay for like i pay or like but you know the company pays for my insurance now, but when I was paying for my own insurance, it was between like five hundred, five hundred fifty dollars a month. But I wouldn't even know if that would cover a delivery if I had a kid. Yeah, it depends on your income level and your insurance coverage for sure. Um, like I know my parents couldn't afford to give birth, and they qualified for welfare. It was the eighties, so I think they actually just called it welfare, and that paid for my whole birth because they were poor enough. And then now, since the nineties, there's this thing called CHIPS in the United States, which is a Medicaid program that covers around half of American pregnancies in that complicated, confusing way that all insurance works. Yeah, where you I've, don't know what it means by covered. I've known people who are like, um, basically, they're like, I can't get married to my partner even though I want to because if if we want to have a kid and if I I qualify to have like child like my birth taken care of as a single woman or like a single uh, person person rather than like you know yeah like yeah if you got married then you'd be a two-income household and then you wouldn't qualify anymore which is so I'm just like bureaucratic nightmare why yeah nothing really makes sense um but you know, like some people, obviously, they earn slightly too much to qualify for these programs, even though they're so poor, or mm-hmm. they have insurance that covers some of it, but not all of it. I saw somebody online was talking about how their insurance covered a huge section of their like birth, but they still owed like $16,000. And like one of them was a charge literally for having like skin to skin contact with their baby after it was born. They charged them to hold their own baby? Oh my goodness. That's I like, know. you hear of the nightmare stories where someone gets charged like $1,000 for counseling? 
you know, like, yes. quote unquote counseling. And they're like, literally someone came in and asked me if I needed a glass of water. Yes, that's something that my boyfriend had to deal with. He was at a doctor's appointment and they asked him, you know, do you smoke? And he said sometimes. And they said you should stop. And then he got charged like $1,000 for tobacco counseling. Oh, jeez. I know, it was wild. Um, but yeah, you know, so whatever the case, once you have a baby, right, you can expect to spend around a quarter of a million dollars raising them from birth through their teenage years. Wow. Yeah, and childcare alone costs on average around $16,000 per year in the U.S. or $1,300 per month, which is over 20% of the U.S. median income for a family of three. Yeah, I do know people who literally work a job and that job just pays for childcare. Right, and that's why you hear so many people who are like, well, this is ridiculous. I'll just quit my job and I'll be the the childcare if they have like a two-parent household because they're like, I'm not earning much more or I'm not earning any more than what childcare would cost. So I'd just rather be with my baby. Or people who are like, I work a job so I can have spare time. Yes. So I can have childcare because I cannot stay at home because it's like not for me. Right. And then like, imagine how much harder that would be though for a single parent. It's like, how is a low income single parent supposed to afford childcare at all? You can't, there's no way. Nightmarish. Nightmare. So You know, if you bring this up, though, to someone who opposes reproductive rights, they'll usually respond with this one thing. that They're like, well, you don't need an abortion. Just do, what is it, Kenna? What do they always say? Adoption. Adoption. It's always adoption. They're always like, just just do adoption. Just give your baby up. It sounds so simple. Um, Never mind the fact that the U.S. has one of the worst infant mortality rates amongst OECD nations, like, worldwide, with 5.4 deaths for every 1,000 live births. Uh, Cuba's infant mortality rate for the record, you know, that country we're always told we should be grateful that we're not. Theirs is around 20% lower, coming in at 4.3, which we talked about in our Utopia episode. Um, And on top of that, the USA has a maternal mortality rate of 23.8 for every 100,000 live births, which ranks us last amongst industrialized countries. We have more mothers dying during childbirth than any other industrialized country. And a person giving birth here is more likely to face preventable death than like in any other wealthy nation during their pregnancy. And from that, black people giving birth in the U.S. are between three to four times more likely than white people to die in the process of childbirth. And I don't know if you've ever been pregnant. I have been pregnant, though. And even if you do not carry a baby to term, a pregnancy alone can fuck you up. Like, I was pregnant for two months, and in that time, I could barely work because, like, being in transportation of any kind, either, like, a car or a subway or a bus, made me so nauseous. I would throw up the entire time, which would mean I would have to exit the transportation, and that just meant I couldn't get to to work. So if you're sick in the U.S. while pregnant, also, you have to lose use your sick leave for that but remember there's like no federal legal requirement for your employer to even provide you with sick leave in the first place so you just have to like hope you have it and then don't run out of it in the nine months that you're pregnant when you feel like terrible the entire time yeah and despite all of this though people who oppose reproductive rights they love to tell you that you should just stick out the pregnancy give birth to a whole ass baby and just give it up for adoption and then all your problems will go away um so all of this basically leads us to today's episode topic which is adoption. Oh my goodness. It was a roundabout way, but I thought it was relevant. <laughs> I thought it was relevant. So the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about adoption right now, there's all these rallies, right? Um, and all these people who like oppose reproductive rights, they'll be at these rallies holding signs like, we will adopt your baby. Have you seen this trend on the internet? Oh gosh. Um, so they're like these memes that came out because all of these people were doing this. So basically 
you'll see like these glazed over white people um, and they're white people like us. I'm not trying to distance myself from my whiteness here, let's be clear. Um, but these are our people and they are the creepiest among us, I think. Okay, this, this sounds mean, but if I was forced to have a child, they would be the last person I would give it to. No, they don't get my child. No, no I would be uh-uh. like, uh, give me the heavy metal couple. No. Yes, yeah. <laughs> give me gay metal heads are the only people who can adopt my child. <laughs> exactly. Yes. No, but instead we got these super like American psycho, yuppie Stepford wife looking people. They just seem like the type of people who would scream at you for putting on the toilet paper roll the wrong way. Yes, totally. They're I don't know where that too came white. From. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's just, a thing. They or like would uh, tip would they they seem like the people who don't tip and who yell at the waiter. They are. They totally are. And so they always have these signs up. I actually have some pictures here that I can show you, Kenna, um, of some people I found. Here they are. They're terrifying, and they have signs up that say things like "We will adopt your baby" and very very creepy looking people um please don't abort we will adopt your baby and then another one again please don't abort we will adopt your baby with their contact info um i okay you know i'm just gonna say you know i don't like judging a book by you know i don't know these people just oh i'm judging them i'm judging them <laughs> like, like, you're all nice i'm like no these people look sometimes creepy you know, and i hate them it's so, uh, you know, it's so, it feels so icky sometimes to be like, these people think that they're doing, like, they're like, oh, I, I, I want to do the right thing. I want to help people. And to me, it's just so frustrating because it's like, you're not really doing the the moral thing. You're not really doing the right thing here. Yeah, like, no. You're, you know, like, I that quote that's like, the, the, uh, Oh gosh, the path of good intentions is the is like oh, yeah, the, road yeah. the road to hell. The road to hell is paved pa- with good intentions. The road to hell is paved with good inten- intentions. And it's this couple here saying, "God loves you and your baby. Please don't abort. We like, will adopt your baby. Come talk to but us." But that's like people who are just like, "Well, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to be nice and I'm trying to be good. What the fuck is wrong with you?" Right. Like, it's that vibe where you're just like, "I thought you were trying to do the right thing and be like, you know, uh, what do you call it, like." Uh, you know, in the brotherhood of, 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 of Christianity, Jesus, you know, uh, whatever, fraternity, yeah. you know, whereas like, that's not really where it's coming from. You're just making it about yourself being the good person wanting to adopt a poor child of like someone you assume is like garbage. Yeah. That's the vibe I get. And I don't think that they realize that's the vibe. And it's really because, but when you tell people that's the vibe they give off, they lose it. They lose it. They're like, how dare you? Instead of like being like, oh, maybe what I'm doing is kind of offensive. Yeah, this one, this last one that I have a picture of, this is a person who actually stands in front of adoption clinic, or abortion clinic, sorry, and holds up this sign that says, if you came here today to get an abortion, please consider letting us adopt your baby instead. We will love you both for the rest of our lives. And to me, just the fact that this person is camped out in front of an abortion clinic with this sign is like such an invasion of privacy and space you know yeah I'm also just I'm like it does this work or is it performative I'm sure it's It's like I'm sure it's like a numbers game like you know like dudes who yell out of their pickup truck and is like come home with me baby (laughs) which happened to me once in Idaho but it's just like does that ever work you're like maybe if you did it to 10 million people there's one person who's like 
I'll come with you. Yeah, one person's like, you know what, fuck it. I'm not doing anything else for a while. I've had a real bad day. What could happen here? Yeah, it's true. Um, so, but wait, have you seen on TikTok, kind of, there's like those people called the good liars and it's the two dudes who interview people. They pretend to be like really conservative and they go to conservative rallies and they interview people, but their interview questions just like lead people to contradict themselves in like circles. No, I haven't seen this. Okay. So it's a good, it's, they're, they're good. They're on TikTok. They also have like a little documentary. It's funny. So one of the ones they did recently, they went to one of these like anti-reproductive rights rallies and they approached this group of four white women who are holding up a sign, holding up this big sign with like, you know, the kind of sign where there's like a stick on each side and like you, it takes like multiple people to hold it up and you stand under it almost like a banner. It's huge. And it said, choose adoption, right? So the guys come up to the women and they're like, oh my God, yes, what a great message. Choose adoption for sure. And then they proceed to ask each one of the four women holding the sign, uh, how many children have you adopted? And each woman answers and the replies, you know, the first one is like, oh, I'm not able to adopt. I would love to adopt, but we weren't able to adopt. And then the second woman says, uh, none, I have two of my own. A third person was like, none, none. And then the fourth person said, I have two of my own again. And then the person was like, oh, are they adopted? And she was like, no, I have two of my own. And then everybody in the comments, a lot of people who are adoptees in the comments were like, notice how they say of my own. Like this is, yeah. This and is I'm like also, so up. you know, in my mind, it's like, I'm sure there are kids you could adopt right now out there. What's the problem? And in my mind, I'm like, is it because they're not white babies? Yeah, it's because they're not babies. Probably right. Um, But, like, what these dudes, like, are pointing out, obviously, is that, like, adoption is not the catch-all solution to reproductive health care that people seem to act like it is, right? Because otherwise these these four women would all have adopted children. And, you know, I do – sometimes I feel so mean being, like – but it's, like, when people are, like, I'm trying to do the right thing. But, again, it's kind of the road to hell is paved with good intentions type of thing where it's just, like – I wish you knew more, but would no one more even change your mind? Well, and also it's pretty hypocritical because, like, you're out here holding a banner telling people to do something that you would not do. Like, you you would not adopt this child, and yet you're telling people to choose adoption. But it's, like, it's it's the other thing about, like, moral superiority, moral high ground, rather than, like, a practical solution or actually trying to resolve a problem. Yeah, where it's just, like, none of them... Uh, were adoptive parents or even foster parents. Or adoptees. Or adoptees. They're holding up a big sign. Like, you could, you know, maybe if you really were like, I want to help children who need a place who don't have one, probably you're doing that without much fuss, you know? Right. You're probably going to a local place, maybe taking classes, learning how to take care of children who come from other homes like maybe you're trying to do something else like yeah in my experience people this this type of behavior seems pretty performative right like we do know one person who was raised in foster care and they currently are fostering another child from foster care and it's done without fanfare it's done very quietly and it's just something where you know she's like I'm paying it forward basically like this was my experience and I want to help someone else who's in my same experience I was in yeah and she doesn't you know she's not out there holding a big sign yelling choose adoption or choose foster care right yeah she's just helping a kid um but yeah so to understand basically adoption in the United States like we really have to start with where everything in the United States starts which is unfortunately with racism genocide and slavery jeez I know welcome back (laughs) Kenna Jumping in. I'll leave for a couple weeks 
and I come back and I forget that it's like Scooby-Doo all over again. Yes, it's all Which, racism and capitalism. Um, okay, I watched, side note, I did watch the greatest cinematic masterpiece ever made. What was Which it? was Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed. Oh, you know, I, I have seen this. I could use a refresher. Um, basically, I just, like... Okay, you know how, like, we love that movie Josie and the Pussycats love, from, like, love. the year... Well, it came out in, like, what, 2002, 2001? Yes, we were in high Maybe school. in 2000. Like, it Something. may have been pre-9-11. Yeah. Um, but, like, it has the same vibe where, like, it's, like, the early 2000s does mod. And they have, like, all... Or, and, but, it, like, futuristic mod. And I'm, like, just the acting is amazing. Like... Matthew Lillard, you know I love him. Oh, uh, and Freddie Prinze Jr. And... Uh, whoever plays Velma looks so cool oh, and is so it, hot. Is it a chick from Freaks and Geeks? I think so. Yeah. I think she was also Hawkeye's wife in The Avengers, which oh. I know. But anyway, yeah, it's like Scooby-Doo where you uh, pull off the yes. mask and it's always the same old man. <laughs> yes, and the old man is either racism or capitalism. Yes. So, okay, we're going to go way back to start about the history of adoption. Um, so... The invasion of the territory we now know as North America, right? It started in 1492. And this is when European merchants came to the region and began uh, began a centuries-long process of settler colonialism that resulted in mass destruction and horror. So in 1492, the native population of North America, north of the Rio Grande, was as vast as 10 million people in 600 different tribes in three distinct regions. And the first region was the Eastern Woodland, where there were the five nations of the Iroquois Confederacy, the uh, Abin. Abenakis, yes, the Abenakis, the Shawnees, the Delawares, the Micmacs, the Mohicans, and the Pequots. And the second region was the Southeast, where settlers encountered Powhatans, Catawbas, Cherokees, Creeks, uh, Natchez, Choctaws, and Chickasaws. And all of them were primarily agriculturalists. And then in the Southwest, there were the Pueblos, the Zunis, the Navajos, and the Hopis. And then, of course, there were lots of others, right? But as white people set up shop here, they started on the east coast of what's now the United States, and a violent genocide started as well, with the white settler colonialists murdering 12 million indigenous people from 1492 to 1900, which is just so many people and so, like, horrifying. And arguably, the first assault on indigenous people came in the form of disease, as the early settlers exposed natives to new microbes that they hadn't encountered before, and thus that their communities had not built up resistance to. Accompanying this was also the violent theft of land and resources, which led to all-out battles, murdering countless people who dared to fight back to protect their communities, or some people who just happened to be in the wrong place at the right time, or, uh, wrong time, causing the white settlers displeasure. In this time period, as well, we see the white settlers' entitlement to the bodies of native women taking them as wives, and that's big air quotes there, since we obviously know these women were not capable of consenting given the power structures of violent oppression that were happening at the time. Additionally, the colonizers started a trend in North America that the USA would carry on centuries into the future, where they would remove like people they perceived to be the more hostile leaders of opposing forces, and instead would replace them with leaders who were more friendly to white interests. And I thought that was really interesting because that is what our CIA does in countries abroad now to this day. We do military-backed coups to put in like pro-USA forces, and this is what early settlers did you know, with the native people here. And then throughout the 1600s, uh, white settlers obviously pushed further west and native people's cultures were suppressed. So this is around the time that we started to see missions pop up, which is something that if you're raised in California, we like learn a lot about missions. Like we always like talk about how you have to make the missions out of sugar cubes, right? And it's kind of like, 
a haha funny California kid thing. But in reality, the missions were like a really horrifying thing. They were like a horrifying tool of genocide. So the missions were there to attempt to re-educate the people that they referred to as savages, right? This is what white people called indigenous people to dehumanize them so we didn't feel so bad about like literally murdering everybody. And the missions were there in part of these kind of re-education efforts to convert people to Christianity. And pretty soon the missions also had military forts, presidios, which were added to them to aid in this conquest, not just of land, but also like of the minds and cultures of indigenous people. And native people who resisted this were physically abused or killed and the traditional native family structures were totally discouraged. And native people obviously resisted through poisonings and setting fires and organizing acts of rebellion. And one incident of native people fighting back happened here in Santa Barbara, California, and that alone resulted in 4,000 total deaths. The native population of coastal California uh, where we are, it was estimated around 70,000 people before the missions came, but it declined to about 15,000 within three decades after missions popped up. So this is kind of important when we set the scenes talking about adoption, even if it doesn't sound like it is, because the missions were these centers to try to squash the cultures of native people and make them assimilate to like white Euro-American customs, basically, before the United States was even formally its own thing. Throughout the early 1700s, Native people fled to varying parts of the land of North America seeking safety, and by the mid-1700s, they found themselves caught between warring colonial powers of Europe as these different, like, factions struggled to take control of, you know, the land that we now call North America, which had been violently stolen from Native people. By 1776, the United States had declared its independence from Britain and asserted itself as its own country, free of European rule, standing on, obviously, the bloody ruins of where there had once been many different nations prior to colonization. In 1783, the American Revolution formally ended with the Peace of Paris, but left the land divided up tenuously with native inhabitants. By 1787, the third Northwest Ordinance had proclaimed, the utmost good faith shall always be observed towards the Indians. Their land and property shall never be taken from them without their consent, and in their property, rights, and liberty, they shall never be invaded or disturbed unless in just and lawful wars authorized by Congress. But laws founded in justice and humanity shall from time to time be made for preventing wrongs from being done to them and for preserving peace and friendship with them. Which sounds pretty good, but if you know anything about American history, you know that we loved to kind of have these treaties and all of these like peacekeeping things that we said we were going to do and we didn't stick to any of them. We just lied and stole and continued to ruin Native people's lives here. So by 1808 to 1810, this kind of era, settlers had overrun the valleys of the Ohio and Illinois rivers where previous proclamations had granted them like no access where they'd been like, no, this isn't our land. This is land for native people. And we were just like, yeah, fuck that. We're just doing it anyway. And all of the game and other wild food there was increasingly growing scarce and settlers were actively attempting to dislocate like native people from that land. So tensions that had been building since the American revolution were worsened by the decline in the fur trade and a drought that caused native and settler crops alike to fail and all of these treaties were not being honored by the United States. It was all falling apart. So in 1830, this was all made worse by the fact that gold was discovered on Cherokee land and white American speculators were pressuring Congress to find a way to legally divest the tribe of its land. So from this, the Indian Removal Act of 1830 was born, which allowed the president to redesignate land and negotiate with native people in a way that best served the U.S.'s interests. Some Native people obviously fought back, and this led to um, some wars in the early 1800s. And in the decade after 1830, almost the entire U.S. population 
of perhaps 100,000 Native people in the East, including nearly every nation from the Northeast and Southeast, all of those cultural areas, they were moving westward, um, either voluntarily or by force, but like the voluntarily is obviously couched in like voluntarily given the fact that all of their land was being overrun and they were overrun and they were being violently attacked, right? So how voluntary can it be? And this is what we now know of as the Trail of Tears, which was this horrific migration that led to countless people dying from starvation, exposure, and illness on this journey. So you might be thinking, okay, this is all horrifying, but what does this have to do with adoption? Well, the thing about genocide is that one of the goals is to eradicate cultural traditions of the victims. And a big part of colonization was this idea that white colonizers should convert the native air quotes again, savages, which is the language that was used to Christianity and make sure that they all assimilated to this European kind of lifestyle. And a big part of this idea was teaching and training children to act more like European American children. And that's kind of saw what we saw happening with all of the missions, right? They were like, we're going to teach these people how to be more like us and assimilate and in that process, destroy their culture and violently take it from them. Beyond that, though, we'd also begun to see this happening in the form of private quasi-adoptions that were happening at the time, where native children would be placed in plantation owners' homes to learn English and try to assimilate to white culture. So in 1811, for example, one Choctaw woman placed her 11-year-old son in the home of Silas Dinsmore, who was this like really disliked U.S. government official who had just established a sprawling plantation in her homelands in what is now the state of Mississippi. So Dinsmore was the federal liaison between the Choctaw Nation and the U.S. government. And he was this racist pile of shit who owned slaves and thought Native people were beneath white people. Just a real garbage human being. Still, he took the Choctaw boy in, as many other rich white elites did during the time, and taught him about Euro-American customs, including slave ownership. So again, you see that, you know, this guy, he doesn't respect Native people. He looks down on them. But he's willing to take in Native children and kind of adopt them and teach them white culture because his ultimate goal is the destruction of native culture, right? It's an act of violence, this act of adoption to try to strip native children from, you know, their heritage. So according to Don Peterson, who's the author of Indians in the Family, Adoption and the Politics of Antebellum Expansion, despite the brief nature of the majority of these domestic arrangements, those who housed and schooled Indian boys and girls understood their actions as a form of adoption. They saw themselves as absorbing native children into their white families, however temporarily, and framed their actions as a part of a broader initiative on the part of their new republic to assimilate Indian people into its expanding territorial borders. White adopters took their cue from some of the most influential governing officials of their day. Peterson also explains that a number of established and would-be government officials themselves incorporated Indian children into their family spaces. Andrew Jackson, perhaps the most infamous figure in 19th century U.S. history for his assaults on Indian sovereignty and Indian lives, embraced the discourse of adoption as he and other U.S. slaveholders worked to acquire Southeast Indian territories for the U.S. plantation economy in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. After invading Creek territories in what is now Alabama in 1813 and ordering the destruction of a Creek village and the massacre of the women, children, and men who lived there, Jackson pronounced an unusual sympathy for a Creek infant orphaned by his troops. The Southern General sent the child home to be adopted into his plantation household in Nashville, Tennessee. So meanwhile, the indigenous people who survived military conquest were, you know, being subjected to political conquest, what some people call death by red tape. As Britannica explains, part of the political manipulation of Native people was to discourage self-governance and instead choose this thing called progressivism, which was a loosely coherent set of values and beliefs that recognized and tried to ameliorate the growing structural inequalities they observed in Northern America. 
generally favoring the small businessman and farmer over the industrial capitalist, most progressives realized that many inequities were tied to race or ethnicity and believed that assimilation was the only reasonable means through which the members of any minority group would survive. So this is pretty fucked up, right? And I think this is really interesting because it was called progressivism and you see this in a lot of like our so-called like liberal and progressive tendencies today, right? It's like, no, just assimilate. You'll do fine. Like, it's fine. It's kind of like a we don't see color thing. Like capitalism will fix it all. Um, But in keeping with this idea, lots of white people in the U.S. thought that like Native Americans trying to retain their culture was just nostalgia that would be overcome in a few generations. And eventually they thought Native people would just assimilate into this new Eurocentric white America that had been created. And that Eurocentric white America had certain values that it really wanted Native people to like join in on. And those values were like nuclear families, patrilineal kinship, differential inheritance among legitimate and illegitimate children. Uh, patriarchal male-led households, division of labor that rendered women and children and elders as just like domestic helpers, a heightened sense of religiosity, corporal punishment for women and children, and an emphasis on capitalist principles like ownership of private property. And these were really different than lots of Native values, where many Native American nations didn't consider like legitimacy of children, for example. That wouldn't be a thing that they would deal with. Um, And they also used extended families and kin groups rather than like, you know, just the nuclear family. They often also had women as the heads of households or joint leadership. Uh, They had this idea that all labor was important and they used nonviolent punishment for children. And they had generally communitarian values that did not include private property. So to assimilate, in addition to these informal adoptions that had been occurring, there were four movements that white progressivists thought were necessary to re-educate Native people into accepting this new arguably much shittier way of life, right, that white people brought here at the behest of the people who committed the genocide against all of the natives. And these four things were allotment, which created reservations, this idea of like reorganization and termination, and, and this is the big one, the boarding school system. So Kenna, do you know anything about the boarding school system? Have you heard of it? Oh yeah, I had a friend whose mom was in it. Yeah. So fucked up. So do you want to explain a little about what it is? Basically, I mean, it's uh, in the United States and in Canada. And right now in Canada, it's more in the news uh, because, uh, well, basically, like during this time, there were created like schools for Native children to go to and basically be away from like their community to basically assimilate uh, into uh, uh, like United States society, you know, like white society, basically. And, uh, I think, I feel like they were usually run by like religious organizations or, but basically they were just, uh, mostly like from all the news reports, terrifying bastions of abuse. Like in Canada, there was a really horrific story about basically all these boarding schools being run by the Catholic church where many, many children were died or were murdered. Yes, that's exactly what it is. So from the 1850s all the way through the 1960s, the governments of the United States and Canada sponsored residential boarding schools where Native families were forced by law to send their children. And these schools were typically really far away from children's family homes, and they were theoretically supposed to teach kids things like literacy and arithmetic as a form of job training. And this is like how they were pitched as assisting in assimilation. Um, However, these schools were typically so fucking racist, they had horrifying policies, And one of these was the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, whose founder, uh, Richard Pratt, in 1892, said his mission was to kill the Indian in him and save the man. 
So Pratt is actually the one who kind of invented this idea of these residential boarding schools for Native children. He himself had been in charge of prisoners of war, Native men, who he dressed in these like Euro-American military uniforms, taught English, forced into labor, and treated as an assimilation experiment. The results of his quote-unquote experiment were taken to the U.S. government to show the potential for the assimilation of Native people, and the government were like, was like, yeah, this looks pretty good. You did a good job. We could do this with all of them. Super fucked up, right? So in 1879, the U.S. government funded his school, which was the first off-reservation re-education camp, basically, for Native children, and it became the model for approximately 350 more schools that would follow throughout Canada and the United States. So when, Canada, uh, when children arrived at these schools, like Kenna said, there was like this one salesy style video which explained that they were bringing children from their states of, quote, savagery and barbarism to one of civilization. Uh, but basically what this meant is they were forced to trade their like own cultural clothes for uniforms that were super like white American uniforms. They had to cut their hair into these Euro-American hairstyles. They were totally isolated from their native friends and family. And these schools, yeah, were usually run by clergy members who attempted to convert children to Christianity like immediately. Then any displays of native culture, including language, song, dance, religion, stories, food, were punished with beatings, electric shocks, and withholding of food. And the conditions in these schools were horrifying and torturous and sexual abuse was rampant. And some years, uh, abuse and neglect ended with the murder of over half of the students in the schools in a single year alone. And Native families knew that this was happening. They knew that kids weren't coming back from these schools or if they did come back, it was horrible. So they began teaching their children to hide from government agents who came to visit. Some students tried to run away from the schools and some of them would end up walking hundreds of miles to return to their homes. So Margaret Jacobs, a historian at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln who studies the treatment of Indian children in the United States says, this idea that Indian culture doesn't really belong with their families and they would be better off with white families. This is the idea that's kind of like driving the thinking of how to deal with native children at the time. So more than 75% of Indian children in school at the turn of the 20th century were brought up in these boarding schools, according to Jacobs, which means they were being raised by white people who just thought they could do a better job of raising the kids, basically. And this thinking that native children would be better off being raised by white people, it crept into the idea of adoptions too. So Don Peterson explains that Indian people were supposed to enjoy liberty in the United States, but were also to remain socially and politically subservient to U.S. whites. Unlike people of African descent, whose identities became synonymous with slavery, a status that denied black people the very rights or recognition of kinship, Indians were described as free people who could potentially be incorporated into the U.S. national family, a process that in turn mandated that Indians adopt to the social, economic, and familial values associated with white U.S. society. Desires to adopt Indians into the United States reflected ambitions to position Indian people as at once on equal footing to whites, yet simultaneously pliable to white demands. Indians were to be assimilated as free children within the white national family, yet they were also supposed to remain permanent youth whose social, political, and intellectual maturity was constantly deferred. So in the United States, um, we started to see the first uh, modern adoption laws passing around this time too. So in 1851, the Massachusetts Adoption of Children Act was passed, and this act meant that the justice system would do its part to ensure that people adopting children were fit and proper to provide homes for these kids. However, this idea of what was fit and proper was left entirely up to a judge's discretion, and as you can imagine, it left the door open for white supremacy to creep through in like a really major way. Other laws were also uh, like 
kind of passed at the end of the 1800s all around the United States. In 1868, Massachusetts had these de facto foster homes where the board of state charities paid for children to be boarded in private family homes where they were visited by like an agent of the state to check in on them regularly. And then in 1872, the New York State Charities Aid Association was organized, which specialized in child placement programs and found homes for more than 3,300 children in 24 years. So while, you know, these boarding schools are going on, we also have like kind of formal institutions of like child welfare services being established in the United States too for non-native children, just for like other children in general. And we see these kind of growing like hand in hand around the same time. And the ways that these modern ideas of adoption intersected with these boarding schools for native children was really interesting in like this terrifying way. So Indian children went into the households of US whites as families adopted out those kids from those boarding schools sometimes. Uh, and this was a process that often translated into the indentured servitude of Indian children. Like in a lot of the texts that I'm reading, they say Indian, you know, so I'll use the term Indian and native and indigenous kind of interchangeably here. Um, but yeah, basically native children were adopted out from these boarding schools by white families and then like put into forced labor on farms and in white homes. So they kind of had this like overlapping system of like culturally dominating and like dominating via labor native children in this process. And uh, the system of adopting native children from boarding schools created what would become from that point on an ongoing struggle in the United States for oppressed and marginalized people of color to protect their children from U.S. adoption and fostering practices and in particular native families and black families. So white adopters in the 1800s basically believed themselves to be superior to American native people. And therefore they felt entitled to separate native children from their families and instead place them into white controlled spaces. Within the framework of colonization, indigenous people were positioned as an unworthy group, like incapable of reproducing their own communities and cultures and relocating native children outside of those unworthy, big air quotes there, native homes, and instead placing them into white homes, which white power structures viewed as inherently more worthy, seemed like the natural next step for white people on this land, right? And one that allowed these white homes to position themselves as saviors, helping these native children escape what they considered to be bad lives, and instead placing them in better homes with more opportunities. So it was a reflection of white supremacy that may have been so ingrained in the adoptive parents' minds that there's a good chance they weren't even aware that that's what they were doing. Like maybe, like you were talking about earlier, like you know, some people just literally think they're doing a nice thing, but it's so backed by like white supremacy that maybe a lot of these people had no idea that's what they were doing. But some of them very much were aware that that's what they were doing. Like we heard with like Andrew Jackson and these really prominent white leaders at the time. They knew very much there was like a political reason for white families adopting these native children. And it's hard to kind of know like who was who, who knew what they were doing, who had this white savior complex, whatever the case. And like the roots of adoption were kind of founded from this in the United States. So we have these adoptive families, usually white, positioned as saviors, while adoptees, usually poor children of color, were positioned as victims of like their own race or ethnicity without any kind of explanation accompanying this, that white supremacy as a system was what had created widespread poverty in communities of color in the United States and stolen resources from them. And this idea of Americanization via adoption extended beyond native children too. 
Between 1854 to 1929, as many as 250,000 children from New York and other Eastern American cities were sent by train into the Midwest and West, where prospective families could decide if they wanted to adopt them with like little to no oversight. Charles Loring Brace, who directed these trains, thought that the children of poor Catholic and Jewish immigrants who, although may have been white, were definitely ostracized and otherized by xenophobia and just like fear of the immigrant. He was like, oh yeah, these like immigrant kids, if they're adopted by proper Euro-Americans who are Anglo-Protestant, um, they could be reformed and assimilated into mainstream Protestant America too, through like hard work on farms in the Midwest. And the idea was also that these children could be removed from the depravity of urban environments. As the Adoption History Project explains, reformers like Brace were determined to salvage the civic potential of poor immigrant children by placing them in culturally worthy families while simultaneously reducing urban poverty and crime and supplying some of the workers that Western development required. So these poor immigrant families, though, they were often not actually interested in giving their children up for adoption or they were positioned as though these kids are orphans, they have no families, but in reality, they had families back home. In addition to immigrant children and native children entering the adoption system, there was also the role that adoption played in black communities in this time period. In 1874, Harriet Tubman and her husband adopted a child, uh, Gertie Davis. As slavery tore families apart, children were often left behind in need of care and other black members of the community stepped in to provide them with homes. This is like really interesting to me because it's different than the weaponized institutional or capitalistic methods of adoption we see happening with white Euro-American culture during this time. And it's probably actually the most similar to the way we think about adoption when we think of it today. Like, oh, you're helping children in need who have no one else. So within black communities, this act of like adopting other children from within your community, it was an act of resistance used against those institutional and capitalist systems rather than a weaponized tool of them. By the year 1900, there were around 20,000 native children living in those boarding schools. And again, remember, these are children that were taken against their will from their homes. Some parents even camped outside of the schools just to be closer to their children, which is like really sad. Others who refused to give their children up were incarcerated at places like Alcatraz. These were not families who wanted their children to leave home. And many students still, yes, were running away from the schools and they didn't want to have to leave their homes either. Lots of students never returned home at all, all while the United States government passed laws stripping Native people of their land. So it was kind of this intentional effort to remove Native people from Native land and kind of distance them from their cultures so that when the U.S. government went in and seized the land in the decades that followed, they wouldn't have as much pushback. One, because literally there were fewer young people like on the land to defend it because they were in these schools. And two, because the goal was that they had become so assimilated into other elements of culture that they wouldn't find it to be worthwhile to fight for that land. So it was this really like militant construction of like a very detailed system to try to just seize up as much land as they could from native people. And, you know, remember these children from the boarding schools, they were often then sent to private white family homes, either in foster care or adoption after that. And fostering was growing in popularity in the U.S. around this time. They called it placing out, and it was considered an alternative to a traditional orphanage type system. And along with this, in 1904, the first school for social work was founded called the New York School of Applied Philanthropy to assist in this idea of placing children in foster settings. So in 1909, the federal government decreed that if children needed to be removed from families rather than going to orphanages or institutions, they should instead be placed in family homes. And this was encouraging the growth of the foster care system. A year later, the first specialized adoption agencies were founded, and we begin to see this increase in formal adoption in the United States on the whole. 
Shortly after this, in 1912, Congress created the U.S. Children's Bureau and the Department of Labor to investigate and report on all matters pertaining to the welfare of children. And we see this as being like the seeds for Child Protective Services or CPS as we think of it today. It's this idea that the government can come into your home, much like they did into native homes, and take your children from you if they deemed you an unfit parent for any reason, then send your child away to a foster home, uh, ultimately to be adopted by someone else who they deemed more fit if you like couldn't get your shit together. And you can see right away how, just based on how this worked in native homes, this can very easily be a way to take children of color from their families and get them adopted out into white families that the courts would deem a better fit for parenting. Seeing a market for this in 1912, this other thing started to take off called baby farming. Have you ever heard of this, Kenna? Ew, that sounds gross. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds, well, it sounds like, you know, Cabbage Patch Kids from yes. when we were children. <laughs> it's basically that. I'm yeah. like, ew. It is the commercial sale of infants to adoption agencies for profit. So you would have people who were like, I can give birth. I'll knock out a few of these things for some cash, right? Uh, it's like, kind of like a surrogate? Kind of, but like, there's not like a person there you're doing it for yet. You're just like, got a baby, let's sell it. Pregnant again, let's get another baby, let's sell it. And the U.S. government was like, oh, like the baby farming's kind of creepy. We got to get control of this. But like, it was kind of like a natural byproduct of the commodification of children, which we see happening around this time. Also around the same time, another creepy thing was happening in the United States, which was eugenics was getting super popular. Oh, golly. Yeah. So you have all these kids, right, who are like, oh, no, we've been taken. We're, uh, we need to be adopted out. We're poor. Our parents are unfit because of their poverty, whatever. So then all these people are like, well, we got to give them all IQ scores to measure their worth to see how valuable these kids are for adoption. And this is also another thing that ties into this like commodification of the adoptee appearing. Suddenly, right, the adopted child is a tangible good which can be bought and sold. And because of that, there's expectations placed on the adopted child for performance and quality, much like a product, right? You don't want a bad quality adopted kid. You're like, let's give it the good, oh, the good IQ test. It's this really fucked up thing where we're like, yeah, we're like objectifying these children. I still can't stop thinking about Cabbage Patch dolls and why they were so fucking popular. They were so popular. Did you ever have one? Yes, my... My grandma, like, stood in line to get me one as a baby. Yeah, I remember they had, like, a birth certificate. Yes. Yes, yes. Apparently, you can still go to the Cabbage Patch place. Because, you know, the Cabbage Patch kids come from, like, they're, like, cabbage, you know. They grow, like, a head of lettuce from the dirt. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and apparently, like, they have this little, like, animatronic grove. And they, like, birth a Cabbage Patch baby. Like, I saw a TikTok about it. It was wild. Do you know where it is? No, but maybe maybe one day we'll go for a bonus up. I would love to go to the Cabbage Patch. Um, yeah, so we're commodifying the children. We're selling them. We're giving them value based on their smarts and their brains, right? And then in 1917, Minnesota passes this state law that requires um, children and adults to be investigated and adoption records to be shielded from public view in the event of an adoption. So this did this interesting thing where it created an era of closed adoptions, right? Where children are not granted access to their biological families once adopted. And this kind of sets the pace for closed adoptions to thrive where biological parents have little rights or access to their children in the future and adoptees have a harder time locating or tracking down their biological families. It's just like, nope, this is your family now. No other families ever existed. We don't talk about what happened before this. So the 1910s were really solidifying a lot of bad practices in the world of adoption. 
So then that kind of leads us to the 1920s. And in 1924, a study was published titled How Foster Children Turn Out. And I kind of like how simple this is. So how do they how do they turn out? What happens to them? So this study was conducted by Sophie Van Seden Theus, and it followed 910 children placed into foster homes by the New York State Charities Aid Association between 1898 and 1922. And these studies, like this one and subsequent ones that came out, they kind of found that the children in the program usually had backgrounds that social workers were characterizing as, quote, predominantly bad, but we don't have any other details about what that means. And that would be 55.2% of kids who are in foster homes. And then also nearly a quarter had these more vague backgrounds that were just classified as bad unknown. And this study, it showed that 77% of kids placed in foster care came out capable. That was the assessment, which was viewed as a great success at the time. So by the 1920s, everyone is patting themselves on the back for foster care here in the U.S. They're like, it's doing a great job. It's taking these kids from predominantly bad and bad unknown backgrounds, and it's making them capable really low standards <laughs> it was really confusing then meanwhile by 1925 those re-education boarding schools that we were putting native children in well the population of that had gone up to 60,000 kids in these school and three years later a 1928 report came out that was like hey these schools the conditions are horrifying and this was like really scandalizing to people. People were like shocked by this somehow. I do not know how given our horrific treatment of native people, but it did end up leading to some of these schools closing down and kind of this new idea that we should transfer these kids out of these schools and instead into a foster system that would be more progressive. So we're like, oh my God, well, if the boarding schools are bad, which everybody knew, but for some reason there was an expose that like shocked people. They're like, well, you know, these foster homes are making these kids come out capable, that sounds better. So this is what was happening. The shopping element of adoptive parents was rooting itself in the system as well. And soon the state of Iowa began to administer mental tests to all children placed for adoption to ensure that quote, feeble-minded children were not permanently placed in family homes. And this is super significant to me because we see the complexities of the adoptive parent story presented here. Adoptive parents are still presented as being saviors for children in need, as long as the children aren't too needy, right? So then this kind of takes us to the year 1930. And here, federal policy regarding Native American children in these re-education boarding schools, it's starting to change. And if you're thinking, oh good, they were horrified by the conditions and they're like, maybe we can do better. No, actually the main reason it started to change is that the government was like, these boarding schools are expensive and they are not actually achieving our goal of assimilation. So they're trying to find a place for all these kids and they're turning to the child welfare system. And the child welfare system in the United States was picking up steam at this time, targeting non-white families disproportionately. Around this time, Malcolm X himself was placed into foster care, an experience he later called modern day slavery. He said the social workers who came to his family's home had no feelings, understanding, compassion, or respect. So this also reminds me of like CPS as we think of it today. You've got these government kind of kid cops showing up at your house, disproportionately targeting people who are not white and telling them that they're really bad at raising their kids. And don't worry, we're going to take these kids and we're going to put them somewhere safer, which is a foster home run by white people. And then throughout the 1940s, Native children were continuing to be adopted out into white families kind of based on this system in the United States. 
One Native woman, Rebecca Black, explains that her grandmother's parental rights were terminated while she was sick in a hospital in the 1940s. A judge called her morally unfit, and Black's mother, a child at the time, was taken away from her tribal community and adopted by a white family in a matter of days. Black says the folks that adopted her made her feel that she should always be grateful that they saved her from this poor existence. They knew nothing about her culture. When Black's mother became pregnant with her as a teenager, her mother's adoptive parents sent her away to a school that then forced her to sign voluntary adoption papers to forego her rights to motherhood. And just like her mother before her, Black was adopted without maternal consent. Black ran away from her own adoptive family as a teenager and only found her birth mother decades later after years of research. In the decade following 1945, adoptions in the U.S. doubled, fueled by the end of World War II, at which point global wars had created mass refugee migrations, famines, and other disasters that made Americans take notice of what they perceived to be children in need in other countries. So many of these children in need from other countries were mixed race children, usually with American fathers who had been servicemen and then also mothers of Korean, Vietnamese, um, or German heritage sometimes. Back in the U.S., religious missionary groups were mobilizing these international adoption efforts to kind of rescue these mixed race babies that U.S. service people had kind of created in different countries they were stationed in. And Americans kind of began shopping for these babies abroad. And military families still stationed abroad were the first to jump in and kind of lay claim to these adoptions. American news sources also became overrun at this time with stories about children of color in need of being saved by white Western families. However, most notably, the German orphans remained the most popular picks. Oh, I wonder why. I wonder why. So adoption is picking up steam, but it's compounding the effects of racism and white supremacy like into the system of adoption as it grows. Soon, Black American children found themselves in the same position that Native children had been in for decades, with families being unfairly targeted by these new social work systems and children's be children being seized and like in mass based off this idea that their parents were like unfit to be parents for whatever idea. And it was often this like generalized term fueled by a racist assessment of parenting methods. It was just like, oh, black people aren't good at being parents. Super fucking racist. And they were like, don't worry, we'll come take your kids and rescue them and put them in white homes. So in 1948, the first recorded transracial adoption of a black child by white parents took place in Minnesota. Obviously, we know during slavery, there were unrecorded, uh, like, I don't even want to use the word adoption because they were so fucked up. But we know that plantation owners often had black children under their care before that, before the United States was formally founded in these like really fucked up ways. But, you know, this was the first like recorded formal adoption of a black child by white parents happening, you know, in Minnesota. Similarly, by the late 1940s, New York was passing laws to try to put a stop to black market adoption rings that had started popping up. And this kind of further proves this idea that uh, adoptees' children were being viewed as assets for families to purchase rather than as individual people whose needs should be prioritized and who needed protection. So by the mid-century, virtually all states in the country had revised adoption laws to incorporate like minimum standards of pre-placement inquiries like into where they would be going, post-placement probation to be like, that was kind of hard to say, post-placement probation. But just where like basically the government would come in and be like, okay, we're checking on you for a while to make sure everything's going okay. And then also those ideas of confidentiality and sealed adoption records, those closed adoptions. 
And at their best, these standards try to promote like child welfare. Like we're not just going to give random people kids and hope they don't kill them, right? But they also reflected these like eugenics kind of ideas about the quality of adoptable children and the quality of perceived like parents. And they serve to make these tastes and preferences of adults who are doing the adopting more influential in adoption than the children's needs, feeding into these systems of the commodification of children. One infamous federal program called the Indian Adoption Project resulted in hundreds of native children in Western states being removed from their parents and given to white families, often several states away. This and other programs like it lasted for about 20 years, starting in the 1950s. The Indian Adoption Project ran from 1958 to 1967 and was a social experiment to see what happened when Native children were removed from their reservations and homes and placed with white families in a continuation of the boarding school assimilation tactics that had come decades before. Government documents regarding the Indian Adoption Project explicitly laid out the connection, noting that adoption was cheaper than running the boarding schools was. Along with this, though, the government knew that they needed to sell white families on the idea of adopting children of color. So these propaganda articles in like good housekeeping and magazines like that targeting white families came out and they called these native children unwanted and talked about how they were in need of newer, better lives. And these media campaigns were super effective. Soon hundreds of white families were signing up to adopt native children under the impression that providing them with a white family home would be an act of service. However, unlike the media that targeted white families claimed, these native children were not unwanted. They weren't orphans. They were children who had been forcefully taken from their families who wanted to keep them. Where in the past, native families hid their children from government officials who came to take them to boarding schools, now native families began hiding their children from social workers who were similarly coming to steal children and put them into adoption with white families, citing generic reasons like neglect and unfit parents as excuses for the theft. Things like multi-generational housing, something important in Native cultures, were positioned as proof of things like unfit parenting. These children were removed from their homes for a lifetime, and information about their birth families remained in closed files, which could only be opened with a court order. As Susan Harness, a Native adoptee from this era, explains, many courts are still hesitant to get involved. With no knowledge of our parents, our communities, our tribes, there were almost no avenues by which we could find our way back to our homes. The legal veil that lay between us and our blood families also lay between our adopted families and our tribes. Adoptive families taught, sought this veil for protection should our families and our tribes seek our return. Harness says that adoption was successful in its goal of assimilating Native children. She says, we were placed in white families and raised in white communities, attended white churches who taught us white rules, and attended white schools where a colonizing history was the only one we knew. That history we were taught framed us dirty, war-mongering savages, little more than animals, which is why we needed to be civilized. The adoption programs and projects of the mid-20th century were done under the guise of child welfare. The ideological argument ran that if an indigenous child was taken away and placed with a white family, a better family, literacy, alcohol abuse, and other dysfunctions that came to define the indigenous problem could be fixed. Once fixed, we could be reconstructed in the dominant culture's image. So piggybacking off of this like supposed success of adopting native children into white families, from 1953 to 1958, the first nationally coordinated effort to locate adoptive parents for black children took place. And the white family's fervor for saving babies from other countries also had resulted in increases in international adoptions. So by 1957, international adoptions were rising in popularity to the extent the the International Conference on Inter-County Adoptions, which like inter-county was just the word they used to describe like 
international adoptions of any kind, they had to issue this whole report like, hey, there are all these problems coming along with these adoptions, notably that children are having a really hard time assimilating when they aren't around anyone who looks like them or shares their experiences of the world, in particular discrimination. Between 1953 and 1962, Americans adopted 15,000 foreign children, usually transracial adoptions where Asian children were brought into white American families. So native black and Asian children were being commodified in mass by white adoptive parents eager to have a child, thinking more about adoption as a fulfillment of their savior fantasies of ideas of love and family than as a helpful tool to actually assist these children in their lives. By the 1960s, one in four native children had been separated from their birth families via adoption or fostering, which is just huge. And new programs from Christian churches and other private agencies began placing native children into white adoptive homes. Like the decades before, these children were taken via manipulation, threats, false claims, and sometimes by force. One native adoptee from this area recalls their parents being told that if they didn't give up this one child now, they would never see any of their other children again. Harness explains, in 1962, the average reservation family had an annual income of $1,500. Unemployment on the reservation was between 40 to 50%. Schooling was typically just eight years, and 90% of households lived in homes far below the, minimum standard, below the minimum standard of comfort, safety, and decency. More than half of these homes were one to two room dwellings. 80% had to haul or carry water for household use, and the infant death rate was 70% higher than the rate of infants in the population in the whole. Colonization created these statistics, which came to define the Indian problem. Adoption was designed to interrupt the problem, except it interrupted us, personally, psychologically, and physically. Many of us bought into self-destructive history, into the legitimization of white privilege, into the idea that somehow the Indians brought this on themselves. In our confusion, we dulled the pain through alcohol and drugs. We turned to sex in our, in our quest for love, and some of us took ourselves out of the pain permanently. Those of us who survived asked no questions until we were older. That's when we realized that we were almost just like them, except our skin was too dark. A reminder to those around us that even though we acted white, our true membership was Indian, an ethnic group who, through their active resistance to land-grabbing measures, had become classified as enemies of the state. But now, being classified as Indians, we found that when we turned to go home, we weren't members there either. We'd lost our traditions, our language, our culture. Our legal adoptions had taken us from one family and placed us into another. We were no longer even legally remembered in our families and communities. We became lost in between. And this quote's really powerful because this is obviously exactly what the United States government was trying to do when they removed children from their homes. They thought, you know, if we can take these native kids from their homes, we can assimilate them into white culture. They will lose their own culture in the process, which is another key part of genocide, right? It's stripping people from their cultures. So Harness also recalls this story where she says, there I am in the third grade, 1967, saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, that symbol of red, white, and blue under which so many of our people died. Since the establishment of the US government, its military has led over a thousand campaigns against us from sea to shining sea and their zeal to take the land. It was up for grabs evidently because we weren't using it appropriately, but I am not aware of all of this. I am only aware that afterwards our teacher asks us to open our songbooks to a certain page and after she plays a few of the opening notes on the piano she raises her arms and invites us to sing and i do with gusto in 1492 columbus sailed the ocean blue 
The rest of the lyrics are long gone and a memory crusted over with storm-blown sand. But now, decades later, I wonder how I must have appeared, that little American Indian girl who sang so gloriously about the man who was remembered for two things, discovering America, in quotes, and being the inaugural figure responsible for our genocide, the physical and cultural slaughter that has dogged American Indians for 522 years. He is held accountable for all of this by merely sitting, setting foot on a piece of land that he mistook for the East Indies. So another native adoptee from this era um, found documents in adulthood where his biological father had attempted to locate him in the court system. But these documents falsely claimed that he and his brother were super well adjusted within their adopted family, implying that removing him now would be harmful. He says, though, that this was not true and that he actually attempted suicide in his new adoptive white home. Another native adoptee from this era says her adoptive mother verbally, physically, and sexually abused her, causing her to drink and use drugs in her teenage years to numb the pain. Another native adoptee from this era said she believed for many years that something was wrong with her. By the end of the 1960s, the Indian Adoption Project was considered a success by the government, with one document saying, quote, generally speaking, we believe the Indian people have accepted the adoption of their children by Caucasian families. However, Native women said otherwise. One woman recalled social workers pressuring her to give her baby up for adoption before it was even born, while she was still pregnant. Another recalls her children being picked up and placed in a foster home where they were abused. Some psychiatrists like Markle Schechter, Marshall Schechter began to question if adoption was truly the savior story the mainstream media had come to believe. He published a study showing that adopted children were 100 times more likely than their non-adopted counterparts to show up in clinical populations. In the field of adoption, experts began to ask, was adoption itself a traumatic event or were adoptees traumatized by their past experiences, those same experiences that led them to quote unquote need to be adopted? It was a correlation versus causation question that a lot of white thinkers at the time were starting to come up with. So by 1970, adoptions in the U.S. were hitting their peak. This was like the, the biggest year for adoptions, and 80% of them were organized by private adoption agencies. One adoptee born in the 1970s recalls, I was adopted at three weeks of age and grew up in a loving family. My parents told me from the very beginning that I was adopted, but I had no access to information about my origins because closed adoption was the norm in the United States well into the 1970s. Back then, most birth parents signed away their rights to contact their child, often unwillingly, and the child's original birth certificate was amended with the adoptive parents' names replacing the birth parents. As a baby, my origins were literally erased. With more insight into the psychological effects of adoption, experts began to advocate for a move away from the system of the closed and sealed adoptions of decades past. And movements instead began to encourage like search, reunion, and open adoption. And these were gaining traction, which is thought to like assist in the adjustment to adopted life. They were starting to find that kids did better when they knew that they were adopted and when they had the option to be reunited with their birth parents if they wanted to. So also in the 1970s, 1978, Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, and lawmakers from both parties were responding to more than two centuries of efforts by various governmental, religious, and social welfare agencies to impose American values onto those tribal communities. 25 and 35%, between 25 and 35% of all Native children had been removed from their parents' homes at this time, according to research done by the Association on American Indian Affairs. And 85 to 95% of those children were living in non-Native homes, 90% with white families. States would be required to 
now attempt to keep Native children with their own families or if not available with other Native families if they were removing them like from their homes for some reason. And this was like a major law that was supposed to help protect Native people from this total cultural genocide perpetuating into the future. Between 1968 and 1972, approximately 50,000 black and biracial children were adopted by white adoptive parents as well. And at the time, adoption of black children by white families was thought to be necessary because of this increasing number of black children in foster care, I wonder why, probably racism, and the seeming lack of black adoptive families, also probably racism. In the early 1970s, transracial adoptions gained in popularity as the number of available white infants was declining and the number of prospective adoptive parents continued to grow. So everybody at this time was like, oh, this is probably a good thing. You know, this is kind of the decade of adoption reform. We're like looking at all these things where we're like, oh, you know, closed adoptions are bad. Let's do open adoptions instead. And oh, it looks like Native families are being really, really harmed by being adopted into white families. Like we should make a rule where, you know, Native kids should stick with their own kind of tribes and communities for a better upbringing. And while all this is happening also, in 1972, the National Association of Black Social Workers issues the statement that's like, hey, we are vehemently against the placement of Black children in white homes for any reasons. So the organization's main reasoning for the stance was this idea that white families were ill-equipped to raise a black child in a racist society and they were unable to teach them how to deal with racism properly. They also believed that black to white transracial adoptions were done with the benefit of the white family in mind rather than the benefit of the child. And they cited concerns that these placements compromised the child's racial and cultural identity, amounting to a form of cultural genocide, which is pretty hard to argue with, right? Because we see that in the 1970s, everyone is kind of aware that this is happening with native children who had this exact same experience happen to them. Um, so, you know, it's calling back. And I will say to their credit, the adoption like kind of industry at this time saw this critique and worked really hard to reverse it. They were like, oh, okay, great. We're gonna try to minimize transracial adoptions. And from that point on, they kind of had this idea in mind that they would try to stick kids like in, you know, the foster care program, which was kind of like the public one that had governmental access, they would try to keep them with similar ethnic and racial backgrounds, which a lot of people at the time were like, yeah, like genetic mirroring is important for these kids to like grow and develop. They need to be around people who look like them and have their same experiences. So that was kind of like the era of progress in terms of adoption. And you would think that if things had like started along that path, maybe we wouldn't have any problems with adoption today. However, by 2003, there were still more than three times as many Native American children in the foster care system per capita compared to Euro-American children, according to this last available study, which tells us that nothing really was getting fixed, right? There were still all these issues. And additionally, international adoptions continued to be super popular, with nearly 23,000 international children being adopted by Americans in the year 2004. As the Harvard Political Review explains, promises of astronomical adoption fees motivate orphanages to ensure a steady supply of children. This causes orphanages to resort to drastic measures, even occasionally paying kidnappers directly. According to Carney's report for his book, The Red Market, the problem is particularly rampant in impoverished countries. Malaysian Social Services, located in Chennai, located in Chennai India, has paid about $236 per child, while China's Hunan province hosts institutions that openly purchase children for up to $350. 
Western adoption agencies are not immune from temptation either. Notably, employees of Zoe's Ark, a French charity, attempted to fly 103 Sudanese war refugees from Chad in 2007. But police later determined that most of the children had been taken unwillingly from their families in Chad. So what we're seeing is international adoptions are getting this massive human trafficking problem in the early 2000s, where babies are being stolen from their families against their will and then sold to wealthier white families in the U.S., many of whom aren't even aware that they are purchasing a child and think that they are legitimately saving an orphan from another country. In 1999, one woman, uh, Sivagama, had her son stolen from her in India. She lived in this community with lots of children, and it was pretty common to leave your kids playing in front of your house with other parents and kids around to keep their eyes on them. So one day, she leaves her toddler a few free feet in front of her house for maybe five minutes. When she comes back, her son is gone, and it turns out he was kidnapped by this man and brought to an orphanage on the outskirts of town that paid cash for healthy children. So Sivagama and her husband spend five years looking all over India for their son. They hire private detectives. They follow up on leads that are as far away as 325 miles from their house. They sell off a bunch of their assets and they move into the small one-room house just to fund the search for their son. In 2005, the police there find this group of people who had been kidnapping children on behalf of an orphanage called Malaysian Social Services, who paid, again, $236 per child, and one of them confessed to kidnapping her toddler. Records show that her toddler was adopted in 2001 and that Malaysian Social Services arranged at least 165 international adoptions from 1991 to 2003, mostly to white countries like the United States, the Netherlands, and Australia, earning in total $250,000 in adoption fees. In 2006, Madonna adopted a child named David Banda from a Malawi orphanage, only to learn that he was not actually an orphan. In 2007, employees at the French charity Zoe's Ark, again, were arrested trying to fly out of Chad with those 103 children that they claimed were the Sudanese war refugees, and police later found out that most of those kids were just stolen from their families in Chad. And then in 2009, workers from the Utah Adoption Agency Focus on Children pled guilty to importing 37 Samoan children for adoption in the U.S. after misleading their birth parents, then lying to adoptive parents and telling them that they were orphaned or abandoned. So what we see here is that these international adoptions are getting really, really tricky because it's just basically becoming human trafficking. And it seems like the obvious answer then, if you're like, oh no, this sounds horrible, is to only adopt domestically. But domestic adoptions can't really be trusted either. Like if you wanted to adopt a child today, there are a few things you would have to decide. Like number one would be, are you adopting in the US or internationally? And number two would be, are you adopting from a private adoption agency or from foster care? And every single decision would be a minefield with its own difficulties to consider. So kind of, do you know anything about like how adoption works? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I didn't either. I know people who have been adopted. Um, but basically, yeah, you can go a couple different directions if you are a parent looking to adopt. You can basically use private adoption agencies and a private adoption agency would just be like a company and they could help you find like a mother who had a child they didn't want that they were looking to give up or a pregnant person even and they would help kind of facilitate the transaction between you two and that could happen like here in the United States or it could happen with somebody who lives in a different country and that's how we ended up with all those trafficking situations happening. Mm -hmm. But also you could just like adopt a child in the current foster care system in the US which I feel like people usually go the private adoption route and that's not as common. Like the person we know who's fostering a child within that system, like that would be like a path to adoption. Like they could foster and then they could adopt, right? 
But today there are more than 400,000 children in foster care and out of those 25% are not like slated to be returned to their families. You know, a lot of the kids in the foster care system, the primary goal is reuniting them with their families and their families just have to like make some changes to get their kids back. But 25% of them, like there's no way they're getting returned to their families for whatever reason. So instead those kids are waiting to be adopted. So currently there are around 100,000 foster children eligible for adoption who are waiting to be adoption. And each year around 20,000 of these kids age out of the system having never been adopted at all. And they're usually then left without the emotional or financial support necessary to succeed like in life the way we think of it that other children with a family usually have support to receive. So if we have basically 20,000 extra kids in the system per year, it kind of makes you wonder like why people are going to private adoption agencies at all. And this is like super fucked up, but the parallel I can think of is like why some people adopt designer dogs. They want something specific, they're shopping, they're not actually concerned with helping, you know? And that's kind of what we see here. Like you were saying earlier, like people want white babies. Yeah, that's kind of what it seems like here. Yeah. People want white babies, or if they can't get a white baby, they at least want a baby. And it's this kind of like really disturbing thing that plays into how adoptions kind of go in the U.S. So there's basically around 135,000 children per year that are adopted. And out of those, 59% do come from foster families. And those foster families, those foster homes, it's usually children who are seized by Child Protective Services for parental neglect or abuse. But 26% of adoptees are international via those like private services that we were talking about in the early 2000s. And the remaining 15% are voluntarily relinquished by their parents, which is a pretty low number. I think most people imagine that these kids, you know, their parents don't want them and they're just giving up their babies all over the place. But that actually is the lowest number of adoptees. And out of all of this, the U.S. government ends up spending around $4.3 billion per year on foster care, which roughly estimates to a little under $7,000 per child per year. And when a child was adopted, 83% of adoptive parents rely on adoption subsidies to help pay for their kids' needs. So they're getting money to help take care of these kids. And the foster families are getting money to help take care of these kids too. And all of this is super interesting when you consider that the number one reason children are given up for adoption in the first place is because parents can't afford to raise them. So what we end up having is a system where the government is paying other people to raise these children instead when they could have just been paying biological parents directly to raise their own children and save the kids years of trauma. In addition, the number one correlating factor for kids taken from their parents by CPS isn't abuse like we're often told. It's what CPS calls neglect, which is just this really vague term that can be applied to anything. And studies show is usually directly related to income levels in an area where a kid comes from. So this means that when one parent is found to be neglecting their child, it's super subjective. And usually it just means that they can't afford things like proper childcare or a nice enough house. And that problem also could have, yeah, just been solved by instead giving the parent directly that extra just under $7,000 per year or around $556 a month is what it is to help them raise their own child without any additional expense to the government at all. In California, where we live, foster parents can get up to $2,600 per month per child. Whoa. I know, right? Like, imagine what that could do for a low-income parent. Like, often low-income parents earn less than that in total per month. Yeah, I don't understand why you wouldn't just give them 
to the parents in the first place and then if it didn't get any better then go from there like bare minimum bare minimum but it's that thing where we don't want to reward people for being poor we have to punish the poor so we're like oh you're poor we're gonna punish you by taking your kid away and giving someone else money to raise them yeah because that's just gonna help yeah right makes no sense so instead, you know, the adoptive parents who take these kids, they're usually married white couples who are around 45 years old, who have a household income of $73,000 per year, and 69% of them are motivated by a desire to expand their family, which means centering their wants and needs in a conversation that should be about what's best for the well-being of this child who is most likely suffering from trauma due to being separated from their birth family. Today, foster care adoptions cost on average $2,744 per child. So if you wanted to adopt a kid, we always hear how expensive it is, but if you wanted to adopt a kid from foster care, it's, it's a little under 3,000 bucks. But the cost for adopting a baby through a private agency in the United States, it's on average $70,000 per child. Whoa. Yes, so this creates a system where wealthier, wider families are literally able to purchase children and often children of color. So as Daniel Pollock and Stephen M. Baranowski explain in The Imprint, disrupting family structures for the so-called best interest of the child is the most ethically challenging aspect of adoption and child welfare practices. The rescuing of orphan children from, quote, third world countries has led to an increase in human trafficking and is the most blatant form of family disruptions for the sake of making money through the guise of illegal adoption. So this is kind of how the system works, right? You get to choose your own adventure and all of the adventures are scary, right? So you can go the foster care adoption route, which is cheaper, and the kids are probably a little older, but you know, there's a good chance that they entered CPS through sketchy means, maybe just because their family's not white and there's a lot of racism applied to this idea of like, what is neglect? And if not that, then maybe just because their parents were poor and didn't have enough money to raise them, but actually still wanted their kids. Or you can go this private adoption route and you have the chance of like, literally human trafficking a child that you're purchasing yeah i read this story in a magazine uh, a long time ago where uh <clears throat> a guy was trying to find his birth mother and then realized that something sketchy happened where um the, someone basically sold him yes so a key issue facing adoption today like no matter what way you look at this, is the same issue that it faced a century ago, which was the overrepresentation of marginalized communities in US Child Protective Services or CPS, and also additionally foster homes from which those 59% of adoptions come. So Child Protective Services or CPS, it's like a network of federal, state, and local efforts to respond to child abuse and neglect. And families typically come under the scrutiny of CPS when they are reported by someone else just around the family who suspects the mistreatment of a child is occurring. And 59% of CPS reports, this person is a professional who's usually like a mandated reporter. Somebody like a teacher, a social worker, a police officer, or a healthcare professional. And the other 41% are reports that come from non-professionals who would be people like your neighbors or your friends or your family members. And already you can see how this system could be rife for racial prejudice, right? Like we already know about the widespread racism in places like hospitals and amongst law enforcement, right? And these are the mandatory reporters. So once a report is made, a C, uh, child protection services worker has to assess the report and be like, well, is there adequate information here? Like, does this actually suggest abuse? And if, if there is, are we able to locate and contact the family to check in? And if the answer is yes to both of these things, then they'll investigate the claim. So if the CPS worker 
while investigating finds evidence of mistreatment, then the courts get involved and children are removed from a home. And sometimes this removal is temporary and the child might be returned back to the home at a later date, which sounds simple enough. But the problem is that all of this is super subjective and it involves people and people tend to be really racist. So current evidence suggests that allegations concerning black children are more likely to be assigned for investigation than those concerning white children. A report from the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services shows that black children are disproportionately taken into CPS custody more often than kids of other races. And this is replicated amongst many other jurisdictions. Uh, one mother, Raniqua Birch, had her children taken away from her because one of them had a birthmark on its lower back and someone at summer camp mistook it for a bruise. From that, it took her eight months to get her kids back, during which time they were in a foster home, and she said she had to watch her children suffer there for over half a year. One judge, Aurora Martinez, recalled two similar cases she had where two different women were arrested and separate traffic stops for drug possession. One mother was white, one mother was black. They were both mothers. The white mother was permitted to call her mom, the police let her do this, to tell them to go pick up her children. But the black mother was denied that option and her kid was taken away by CBS. Another black mom, Shania Bell, left her two-year-old to be babysat by her 10-year-old while she went to work. And then police officers arrested her at work for child endangerment, which is wild to me because I was 10 when my half-brother was born and I babysat him as a baby all the time the first year of his life when I was 10 years old. Like, that's just babysitting. Yeah, I, okay. Have you seen the show on Netflix called Old Enough? Um, no, but I've been wanting to watch it because I remember you talking about it. Oh, the babies do things? Yes, the the toddlers do like little errands and it's all set in Japan. But the little, like there was this two-year-old who went by himself to the store and got all the ingredients for dinner. And he was just totally safe out there by himself. He was totally fine. Yeah. Not saying that I would leave a toddler alone but like babies raising babies but i do think that like kids are like a lot smarter than you think they are also i feel like 10 is a pretty standard age to start babysitting i feel like like for me i feel like it was like 12 oh okay definitely in my neighborhood 10 was when you started babysitting but i think like it probably depends on the kids like there's some 10 year olds i would be like i am not leaving you alone yeah and there's other 10 year olds that'd be like you are you're fine you are an adult yes (laughs) you're doing great Yeah, there's this other black mother, uh, Saisha Mercado, who took her baby to see a doctor because he suddenly stopped breastfeeding but didn't seem ready to transition to a bottle. She was having trouble with the transition, so she schedules, like, a doctor's appointment or she went to the emergency room. I can't remember what it was. Whatever the case, so she ends up in a hospital to talk to a doctor to be like, I'm concerned, my baby's not eating. And when she's there, they arrest her for malnutrition of the child. It's like, that's literally what she's there to talk about. Yeah. She's there because she's concerned that her baby's not eating. That's, like, she's doing the mother thing. What are you supposed to do? Mm. So according to Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the United States of America's 2021 study, risks of having a CPS investigation are highest for black children. So black families across the United States have a higher likelihood of being investigated for neglect. While black children constitute less than 20% of the child population, they account for 40% of the foster care population today. And this could have something to do with the fact that 60% of cases CPS investigates involve only one vague word, which is neglect. And neglect can be interpreted a lot of different ways. One study revealed that even child welfare experts, like amongst themselves, disagreed nearly 50% of the time when given a hypothetical about whether a child should be taken away from their parents or not. So one example of a neglect case 
was another babysitting one. It was a black mother who left her 13-year-old babysitting her 8- and 6-year-old while she went to the dry cleaners. Not even a full I was babysitting day. at 13. Oh, for sure. I was, I was smoking weed at 13. <laughs> I was being bad. I had a job at 14. And you're I had a job out. at 14, too. Over the course of their childhood, this is wild, 53% of black children will be investigated by CPS. What? That's over half. That, okay, like, it seems to me that CPS is basically just, like, another arm of the cops. Yeah, it's kid cops, for sure, 100%. And once these kids are removed from their homes by CPS and placed in foster care, research indicates that black children are less likely than white children to ever be returned to their families. Or to be relinquished to kin, like other family members. I feel like I have read so many articles just on, like, how messed up the CPS system is. And, like, even people in CPS are like, yeah, it's fucked. And I'm like, if everyone thinks it's messed up, how does this still keep happening? And, like, I feel like some of the, like, analysis was like, well, it's because basically the money that like the state gets for foster care they get from like the like they need that money yeah basically and i'm like what like kids are not commodities like we've totally commodified children in the system um they also like in the cps thing they tried doing a colorblind program which was like a test where officials had to make decisions about whether or not to remove a child from an allegedly unsafe home without knowing the race or ethnicity of the families And just doing that led the percentages of children removed who were black to drop from 56% to 29%. Whoa. So almost in half. And similarly today, native children are four times more likely to be placed into foster care than white children, even in families facing similar issues of poverty, echoing eras of the past where adoption and foster care were used as violent tools in genocide. So Don Peterson explains... State and federal agencies and private adoption services continue to undermine both the familial and national rights of indigenous people by transferring children away from their native kin and tribal communities to wealthier and most often white families, despite existing laws aimed to protect Indian families and nations from precisely these kinds of predatory processes. Since the majority of adoptive parents are white, this means that our system of child protection usually means removing children of color from their family homes at higher rates, reuniting them with their parents at lower rates, and adopting them out into white families at higher rates. Today, 40% of adoptions are transracial, meaning white parents with adopted children of color. And while transracial adoptions can be successful, depending on your definition of success, they often come with unique considerations for racial trauma that white adoptive parents aren't prepared for. And it's hard for white adoptive parents to know if the child they, they have is actually saved from a bad home life, or if it's just another child of color stolen by CPS from a family that loves them and wants them back. Yeah, that... Super scary. So on top of this, there's also a lot of information available just about the negative effects of foster care on children. Like that one woman who couldn't get her kids back for eight months because of the birthmark. And she's like, yeah, I had to watch my kids suffer in foster care. And according to Marquette Law Review, once in foster care, children face heightened risks for abuse and neglect within the system itself and generally suffer poorer outcomes and prospects as studies and current events reportedly demonstrate. So this John Hopkins University study found um, this group of foster children in Maryland that they ended up being four times more likely to be sexually abused than their peers who weren't in that same setting. And children in group homes were 28 times more likely to be abused in general. Also, an Oregon and Washington state study determined that almost one-third of foster children reported abuse by a foster parent or another adult in the home. 
More than half of child sex trafficking victims recovered through FBI raids across the U.S. in 2013 came from foster care or group homes. A report completed by the New Jersey Office of Child Advocacy included a study that demonstrated the relationship of perpetrator of abuse to victim. And of the child case studies, 37.4% of perpetrators were institution staff and 36.5% were foster parents. And then 20% were relatives of the victim. So in two different studies, approximately one-third of children experienced abuse or neglect in foster settings. And this kind of means statistically, children are more at risk of violence in foster home settings than just like in an average home with their families. And even for children who are in safe foster home environments, the trauma of being separated from their families is often devastating. Children who've been in U.S. foster care systems are at a significantly higher risk of mental and physical health problems ranging from learning disabilities, developmental delays, and depression to behavioral issues, asthma, these kinds of things than children who have not been in foster care, according to a University of California Irvine sociologist. So kids who've been in foster care are seven times as likely to experience depression, six times as likely to exhibit behavioral problems, five times as likely to feel anxiety, three times as likely to have attention deficit disorder, hearing impairments, or vision issues, twice as likely to suffer from learning disabilities, developmental delays, asthma, and speech problems. And one study showed that foster children experience PTSD at twice the rate of war veterans. Wow. Yeah, and many foster parents are not properly trained to deal with children's emotional, psychological, educational needs. And this can lead to children being moved from one home within the foster system to another over and over when these children have outbursts that a parent doesn't know how to deal with. And that alone is bad since 90% of foster kids who experience five or more moves will end up in the juvenile justice system, creating what many people call a foster care to prison pipeline. So, you know, in opposition to CPS and foster care adoptions, you know, there are still those private adoptions. According to The Nation, today, most women who relinquish infants for private adoption report wanting to parent, but lacking the support or financial resources to do it. Their relinquishments are a reflection of their lack of power in other areas of their lives that would enable them to parent in the way that they wish to do. So this is equally as fucked up, basically, because these private adoptions, what we see is most women who give up babies in private adoptions, they don't want to have to do this. They're doing this because they feel like they're too poor to raise their child alone. So this is also fucked up. As adoptee and adoption reform advocate Rebecca Henson shares, when we talk about women choosing adoption, what we're really talking about is a woman choosing between raising her own child or giving them away permanently so she can survive. No one should ever be in a position where they need to make a choice like that. And it's absolutely unconscionable to me that we so blithely allow it to continue. So pregnant low-income people today report being pressured or cajoled into giving their babies up for adoption uh, pretty often, like way more often than it should ever happen. And they're usually told it's the responsible thing to do because it will give their children a chance at a better life. This one pregnant mother, Cheyenne Klupp, recalls how when she was homeless in 2009 and pregnant, her husband was facing serious jail time. She wanted to have her baby, but she felt the responsible thing to do would be to put it up for adoption. So she went to this private adoption service and started the process, which included things like the prospective adopted parents helping to financially support her through the pregnancy. As time went on though, she began to have doubts about the adoption. She didn't ever really want to do it in the first place. And when she started to express her doubts to the adoption agency, like, I'm not sure if I want to go through with this, she says that they made her feel like if she backed out, then the adoptive parents were going to come after her for all the money they had spent on her so far, which would have been thousands of dollars. And obviously she's like unhoused. She doesn't have resources. There's no way she has thousands of dollars. She was using that to live. So then she became so terrified. She never brought it up again. She placed her son in adoption and she never saw him after that, despite Ugh. never wanting to have to give him up in the first place. Ugh. And what, to me, it's like, 
you could have just given that person like the money yes exactly but you wanted you had to have like if you to me it's like if you want to help the baby like you would just give that person the money to raise the baby right because the baby is going to have less trauma if it's with its family and it's in a stable home environment so it's like we don't actually care about the well-being of these children we care about punishing poor people and buying babies commodifying them it just seems like people like i'm i you know there's situations i'm sure where it's like uh, a child needs to be taken away from their biological parents because of abuse right or or like in a wartime situation they're orphaned there's nobody around right but to me that seems like a very actually quite rare situation it is it is pretty rare and the majority of the cases we see like from all evidence it's that vague thing of neglect which we see as being used to target parents of color um and also neglect is usually tied to poverty based on data which means if you just gave them money then the, the neglect wouldn't happen because the neglect is usually financially inspired in some way yeah which leads me to believe that a lot of even though like people are like yeah i'm doing the right you know like people really i think that people actually want to do the right thing i don't think that most people are dicks <laughs> no i don't think people are like fuck these people i don't care i'm stealing their baby no and it's like but we have this like thing in our society where it's like you're helping and you get a baby right it's where viewed it's, as like a win-win like you're a good person and you get the baby you always want it where it's it's like it's not a dog right i think it, it does remind me of how we kind of treat like puppy culture you know but it also you shop like for it you get it it's cute you know i was you know i had never thought about this but i came i forget if it was like a twitter or a tiktok where they were talking about most people who have children who like like give birth to children because they think it gives them a sense of purpose in their life and gives them a sense of basically like respect by society and i'm just like wow only so just this one thing makes you like worthy in society just by birthing a child which seems really sad to me like not just like because like it like you know it's just like that's the only worth you have like is whether or not you can like have a kid yeah it is sad i mean i think it says a lot about like the disrespect that like society has for like people who can give birth you know it's like that's your only value procreate if you can you loser you know and you're like oh shit i guess this is like what i'm supposed to do and the expectations placed upon people from a childlike birth position you know but it is also sad beyond that because it's like how many people have kids because it's what they feel like is expected of them and then they're not actually equipped to be there for their parents and then you end up with these situations where kids are raised in these homes with parents who don't value them don't prioritize them don't put in the time and energy and they end up like actually suffering neglect. You yeah, because to me, it's like uh, this is like a more existential thing where it's like, yeah, you have a little human to teach them how to do good things and for the future for them to do good things with their or just for them to be alive and just right. experience being alive and they don't have to do anything but exist. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> I think about this all the time and people always say they're like, you like, the default should not be like you have a kid unless you have a reason not to. People are like you should really want to have a child because if you do not really want to have a child, like you will be doing a disservice to that child. Yeah, like right. Yeah, and it's just like, and it's really it's. 
I don't like the the people just get so like upset about this because it's like like people want to do the right thing and then when you're like huh is it the right thing people it's uh, it's hard definitely yeah and or it's it just is- like and, and, and like also people don't really like nuance because this do is not a nuanced like nuance. thing where it's it just is. like because you can be like yeah in a lot of situations like it's really detrimental because of this and they're like well what if the one good thing and it's like you're not saying there's not like some good that comes right nobody's saying that like no like no adoption in the history of the world has ever been good you know it's like no nobody's saying that but it is a systemic institution that we have it's a capitalist institution and it's like this institution that's built on this legacy of like colonization and the nuclear family and the nuclear family to me it's about breaking down communal child care and community into these very nuclear subsets with you know in the man right being like i or the patriarch like yes they have control over so every you know every family has this patriarch and they are in charge of everybody else underneath them. Right. And and to me, it's just like, it, it's like almost like part, to me, it's like not to get on my tinfoil hat, but I'm like, what a great way to divide people and make people want to continue the system as is because there are all these people who are like, I am the head of the family and I have all this power in my little sphere, even though I might not have broader political influence or broader influence everywhere. I am the person in charge of this little nuclear family, and what I say fucking goes. Yeah, I don't think that's conspiratorial, actually. I call it um, king of my own little castle, and I think about this all the time, where it's like men can go through life, and they can be spurned, right, by society. They can be like, oh, I had all this privilege. I was supposed to accomplish all of these things, and they don't. And what they end up doing is taking it out on their families and their homes because they're like, at least here I'm the king of my own little castle, and what I say goes. And I feel like that is, like, the way in which the patriarchy like it takes men and it puts them in proximity to power even if they never actually achieve power and it causes them to lash out in the one place they do have power which in our patriarchal society is often like the home and that's why you have this trope of like so many fathers who hate their kids who don't know what's happening in their house who don't like their wives you know that's like the system where they're like well they go into this because they're taught this is what they're supposed to do they never stop to consider if this is what they want at all and the only benefit they can glean from that is the benefit of power yeah and it's just like and obviously it's not like every like dude in a family i know a dude i like him i live with him he's fine i know one man it's not every man but it's like it's just the culture it's it's the sea that we are swimming in you know and it's like people don't think about like well what if you just had like communal child care like or like you know like we lived in like walkable societies where you're just like i know every kid in this neighborhood and if i see him out and they're doing something weird i'm like hey what's up Right. Like, just be like, hey, what's up, Eric? Yeah. Also, just, like, giving support to the people who actually do really <clears throat> want children. Like, I think about this a lot because my dad kind of raised me pretty much on his own, like, my first 12 years of my life. And my dad was very, very, very poor. And one of the things I grew up realizing is that people are really comfortable doing this, like, eugenics thing where they're like, poor people shouldn't have children. And I, my whole life, have been like, fuck you. Like, literally, my dad was horrible with money. Best parent you can imagine. It's just something that, like came to him naturally. He was just naturally a parent. And by contrast, my mother, who was more responsible financially, was, it was harder for her to parent. It wasn't intuitive for her. She had good parenting ideologies and processes, but she didn't naturally have like the patience that comes with being a parent, you know, which complicated our relationship. When I think about the two of them, I'm like, 
Well, my father was worse with his finance, was a far better parent in that way because he loved it. He loved it. He wanted to be a parent. He loved spending time with me. And like you hear these stories of these people who really desperately want to be parents and you think like, why don't we just support them? You know, like, why don't we give support to these people who, who want to be there? Like, okay, so like back in this whole thing about like how we pressure these women to give up their babies, like there was this other pregnant mother, Renee Gellin, and she recalled being pregnant with complications. And during her pregnancy, she knew the complications were getting really financially expensive. And she was like, there's no way I can afford these bills. So she desperately wanted to keep her baby, but she earned too much money from Medicaid, but she had too much debt to be able to comfortably afford the hospital bills associated with the pregnancy without Medicaid. And she started to say that she viewed her pregnancy as this game of beat the clock. She's like, well, the only way I'm gonna make it out of this is if I find someone to adopt my baby who will pay my hospital bills before the baby's due date. And she was super traumatized trying to get this together. And she ended up finding someone at the last minute to adopt him before birth. And it was just really, really sad experience. And then she did all of this. And then she said it was like heartbreaking because months later she got her bill from her childbirth and she realized that for some random reason, her insurance did cover it all, even though they told her they weren't going to. So she's like, I gave up my baby for adoption for no reason. And she was so mad. She was mad at the insurance company. She was mad at everybody. She's like, why did you guys lie to me the first time? Like I made this momentous life decision based off the understanding I would have to be in thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in debt to pay this all. And the insurance company was just like, oh, we don't know. So, you know, she's like, this is fucked up and people don't know. Like, then there was this other pregnant mother, Sarah Johnson, who gave birth to her second child in April of 2018. But during that pregnancy, her boyfriend lost his job and then they lost their house and then they had to move in with family. And then the family was like, okay, we can keep you here. But once your baby comes, we're not gonna have enough room. So at the hospital, like after childbirth, Johnson was like venting to a nurse and the nurse was like, you know, you seem really like you're under a lot of pressure. Like adoption might alleviate some of that pressure. So Johnson, who'd been awake for 48 hours and was high on post-childbirth medication was like, you know what, you're right. And she's like, yeah, I was terrified. The doctors at the hospital, the nurses, everybody was like, this is such a selfless thing. You can tell you love your kids because you're trying to do what's best. And Johnson and her boyfriend met with an adoption agency affiliated social worker who flubbed the time on the documents to say that it was after 72 hours past birth, which is the legal limit. It was not though, it was like only 70 hours past giving birth. They flubbed the paperwork, and two days later, Johnson had no baby. She'd given her baby up for adoption. She was sobering up from, you know, the drugs from the childbirth, and she was like, I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to do this at all. She wasn't sleeping. She wasn't eating. She was crying on the floor in anguish. And she actually, because that last one, Renee Gellin, started this, like, group to help other mothers, like, better understand their options besides adoption, because she helped her they were able to get Johnson to revoke her adoption paperwork and get her baby back, even though the adoptive parents threatened to sue her and all this other stuff. But she was just like, no, I'm getting my baby back. And lots of other adoptive mothers or like mothers who birth mothers who gave their children up for adoption, rather, they don't even know that's an option after they regret it, that you can, but you Ugh. have to fight for it. And you have to deal with these people threatening to sue you and all this stuff. Oh my gosh. I can barely deal with anything when I'm on my period. Oh, Let alone God. being pregnant. Yeah, and just having given birth, you're just like, I don't know. Like, I can barely deal with anything when I'm, like, sick. Yeah. Like, be, like, you're not, like, like, okay, I have had the same, like, you know, the pain medicine after surgery. Yes. That stuff is wild. Yeah, you're like, loopy. I'm like, woo. Yes. You're <laughs> like, not in a position to make major life decisions. No, it's like, 
Uh, I mean, it's not the same thing, but it's like, you know, there's a, they take those videos, like, after you get your wisdom teeth pulled. Yes. Like, I, it's, like, I'm laughing at the wisdom teeth, but it's just like, you are not in your right mind. And, like, after, like, major surgery or giving birth, which nobody in our society tells you how, like. Horrifying childbirth Dangerous, horrifying. Violent. Painful. You, and they're just like, haha, you don't sleep for two years. And you're like, wait, what? Yeah. No, it's a lot. And there's no safety that. So this like 2016 study showed that nearly 85% of mothers who were surveyed said they would have liked to know more about available parenting resources, like housing, medical, childcare, food assistance, parenting classes, and counseling before deciding to go the route of giving their child up for adoption. Furthermore, almost 78% wished that they had known more about the implication of placement, which is the term used for putting your child in an adoptive situation. Uh, The study also found that 44% of expectant mothers reported being put in contact with birth parents to learn about their experience with adoption, but only 21% reported being connected with parents who'd considered adoption but ultimately decided against it. So the reason why mothers are pressured to give up their children while pregnant, despite there being 20,000 children who age out of the foster care system, is simple, um, which is something you touched on earlier, Kenna, which is that adoptive parents just want infants. They want babies. They want young, young babies. And in 2014, approximately 18,000 infants were placed for domestic adoption. In 2017, the CEO of the National Council for Adoption estimated that around 1 million families are trying to adopt at any given time in the U.S., Whoa. So you have 18,000 infants and 1 million families wanting to adopt them. And it's just, you can't keep up. So these statistics are sobering and remind us that the primary motivation for most adoptions isn't to give a home to a child in need. It's to get a baby. And this is why wealthier adoptive parents are willing to pay $70,000 to private adoption agencies rather than doing the $2,000 from the foster care system to help a child in need. So a lot of the critiques about our current adoption system, it's tied to just how much it centers the needs and emotional experiences of prospective adoptive parents over that of adoptees and birth parents, which is something that becomes immersed in the ideas of valuing white fragility when you see the overwhelming racial and ethnic trends presented in each role of the adoption process. It seems like our adoption process cannot be critiqued because it would hurt the feelings of adoptive white mothers who truly believe they've done something good by saving or rescuing a child. Or more often, perhaps, feel entitled to motherhood, um, you know, regardless of the effects that it might have on people around them, including the child that they adopt. Adoptee Harness explains, Adoption, caught up in the issues of colonialism and capitalism, is murky at best. Where do morals, values, and ethics fit into what has become a globalized industry? Who truly benefits? The children? A family? A community? A society? Or does it benefit industry organizations that are so finely tuned to marketing what Laura Briggs has come to define as the mother and waif images designed to pull at the heartstrings and wallets? In her article, Mother, Child, Race, Nation, the Visual Iconography of Rescue and the Politics of Transnational Transracial Adoption, Briggs notes that these Madonnas with children images are haunting. They create a need to answer pleas for help while at the same time hiding images that address those needs in a more viable and sustainable ways. They hide international aid agencies with buildings, trucks, and personnel, development projects that might redirect water supplies, military check-in points that disrupt or or redirect the distribution of basic foodstuffs, currency devaluation being debated in a parliament or Congress, starving people who live in houses, towns, or even shanty towns as opposed to outdoor spaces and tents of refugee camps. Children playing games, people sleeping, elderly people, white people, men, people wearing warm clothing against the cold, those ill with typhus or other opportunistic infections, people laughing. 
The mother and wife images, Briggs argues, do well at directing attention away from the structural explanations for poverty, famine, and other disasters, including international, political, military, and economic causes. It mobilizes ideologies of rescue. Rescue, need, abandonment, destructive social mores, child movement, and trafficking are the fallout of colonizing and imperialistic global practices. The fallout for adoptees is experienced as burdens, which we carry alone for being different, separated from, othered within the boundary of us. We are tired of labels of who we are or are not, who we should be or should not be, but mostly we are tired of wondering who we really are. Right now, we only know we are the products of colliding societies, cultures, and nations. And I thought this quote was really interesting because it gets into like this systemic structure of like the processes that cause and lead to adoption, right? And it's not to say that adoptive parents are monsters. What it is saying though is that we are centering their perspectives when we talk about adoption, which is a disservice to the other parties involved. So Andrea Ross, who's also an adoptee, thinks fondly of her adoptive family. Still though, she says, my adoptive parents pursued adoption because they wanted a family and were unable to conceive. They explained to me that my birth mother was a teen when I was born and that in the 1960s, unwed mothers had few good choices. They were compassionate about my birth mother's situation and her decision to place me with adoptive parents. Yet much of society gives adopted people subtle and not so subtle messages that we have been saved from a terrible fate and that we should feel lucky to have been rescued. When a traumatized person struggling with issues of abandonment is told they are lucky, that they should be grateful, or that they were chosen, it negates the emotional experience of that person. When it happens to me, it makes me feel as though my feelings and thoughts and experiences don't matter. So centering the mostly white adoptive mother's experience seems to objectify the adoptee in their life, and it makes that child into an object to fulfill the adoptive parent's notions of motherhood, or personhood, or family, or a vehicle through which they can feel good about themselves for having done something charitable. For adoptees, though, many report that adoption itself is a traumatic experience. Denise Alvatar from the Passamaquoddy tribe in Maine was removed from her family and adopted when she was seven years old. She says, all of us who have been taken away from our homes as children, still as adults, we don't feel like we have a place where we belong. Another adoptee, Mindy Stern, says being adopted in infancy doubles the odds of contact with mental health professionals. Adoptees are at a higher risk for substance abuse disorders. We are four times more likely than non-adopted offspring to attempt suicide. And adult adoptees who search and find their biological families are at an even higher risk for psychological distress. For me, like most adoptees, attachment separations and rejections trigger an anxiety response disproportionate to the event. My fear is unconscious, one imprinted in my neurological system for my first separation. Like all preverbal traumas, the severing of maternal child bond leaves a wound that we cannot always describe but we can feel. The dominant cultural narrative of adoption as a noble act, the whole better life thing, squelches adoptees' ability to speak openly about our pain. My life is not better because someone adopted me. My life is different, and no Lifetime movie can capture how complicated reunion feels. As Theodora Blanchfield explains, adoption narratives, like many other things on social media, paint things much more black and white than they actually are for many people. Anti-adoption advocates paint adoption as akin to human trafficking. Adoptive parents and adoptee advocates paint adoptions like a fairy tale with a happy ever after ending. But what if it's somewhere in between? A 2017 study from the Centers for American Indian and Alaska Native Health at the Colorado School of Public Health found that Native children adopted away from their families were more likely than their white counterparts to struggle with drug abuse, alcohol addiction, suicide, self-harm, and other mental health issues. Experts saying that experiencing what they call adverse childhood experiences increased the likelihood of all these kinds of things. Early alcohol abuse, illicit drug use, prescription drug misuse, alcohol use disorders, substance use disorders, suicide attempts, depression. 
what's called risky sexual behavior, adolescent pregnancy, lowered IQ, which that one's weird, impaired cognitive function, diabetes, heart attack. And those adverse childhood experiences, they can include things like physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, physical or emotional neglect, domestic violence, uh, living with an individual who's struggling with emotion, uh, substance abuse, sorry, experiencing racism and or bullying, living in foster homes, living in an unsafe neighborhood, or witnessing violence. Which means that the current state of our adoption and foster system has many of these issues to contend with. There are kids who are trafficked from other countries and sold to adopting parents in the U.S. There are kids who are, you know, without parents or families who do need homes to be placed in. There are kids who are taken from loving homes because their parents are experiencing racism at the hands of CPS and the U.S. government. And there are kids who suffer abuse at home and are in need of safer places to go. There are kids who experience poverty at home, meaning their parents cannot properly afford to care for them. But no matter which of these experiences a child is having, the foster care system and adoption process is likely to traumatize them in itself. And the adoption process is likely to traumatize them more. The experiences of each child in the system are unique, but there are also systemic observations that can be made about adoption on the whole. And many adoptees think that we can do better than what our current system is. So adoptees have been pretty vocal about their experiences online. You can hear a lot of them talk about what they think, what they've experienced, and they kind of have ideas about like what could be better. But I think we tend to like dismiss adoptees perspectives of the negatives associated with their own adoption as being like pessimistic or unappreciative. And we do, we call it an anti-adoption movement sometimes. But as social worker and declassified adoptee Amanda Transu Wolston points out, there is no such thing as an anti-adoption movement. She says, anti-adoption is not a thing. There are no anti-adoption laws or pending legislation, no candidates with an anti-adoption platform, no major anti-adoption groups. Even adoption abolitionists aren't anti-adoption in the way the term intends to mischaracterize them. Anti-adoption is a straw man used to suggest that any person who acknowledges problems or struggles in adoption must therefore not want children to have homes. Literally no one argues for kids to not have homes. People are more concerned about folks not ever saying anything bad about adoption than they are about adoption actually not being bad. Adoption is an institution. It cares nothing for what you think of it. It's the people involved who need you to care enough to make it better. Adoptee rights advocate Henson says, I would personally like to see the reproductive justice movement align itself with the adoptee rights and justice movement, calling out and demanding change of the overt human rights abuses and exploitation inherent in our current adoption policies, practices, and systems. Another adoptee, Tori Bay, says you shouldn't adopt if you don't believe that adoption is trauma. You shouldn't adopt if you are using adoption as a family planning tool. Adoption is for children that need families and permanency, not for families that need children. Parenting is a privilege, not a right. You should not adopt if you think that you are saving a child and giving them a better life. You should not adopt because God told you to do so. You should not adopt if you believe adoption is a solution for abortion or an alternative. And you should not adopt if you are unable and unwilling to have the access and means for therapy, if you are unable and unwilling to be actively anti-racist, if you are unable and unwilling to support the LGBTQ plus community, and if you are unwilling and unable to go to the lengths that it takes to support an adoptee. As Vivek Sankaran explains, the federal government has poured billions each year into a system that rewards strangers to raise other people's kids. It spends 10 times more on foster care and adoption subsidies than on programs to keep kids with their families. And to me, that's the most pressing point. Today, we spend more than $2.6 billion each year subsidizing 469,000 adoptions when many of those adopted children still have loving families eager to raise them. 
Data shows that parents experiencing low wages, unemployment, housing instability, food insecurity, mental health issues, and addiction are most at risk of social services attention. CPS has become a way to take children away from the poor, usually disproportionately people of color, and give them to the rich, usually disproportionately white people, while paying social workers, foster parents, adoption agencies, and adoption subsidies all along the way. What would happen if instead we just gave that money straight to parents and families directly to help ease the difficulty of raising children? It's one of those situations that's rational and cost-effective and humane, but the people seem resistant to just because we hate the idea of giving people money for some reason. Instead, we want to pay people for a perceived service, even if that service causes more harm than good. Yeah. So what do you think, Kenna? Yeah, it always, it blows my mind that you're like, you can't give money to people. They're just going to blow it on uh, booze and like uh, lottery tickets. And I'm like, "Mm, seems like this is some sort of coded language for something. Like when you think about, when you hear like Ronald Reagan talk about like, like quote like welfare queens in like the 80s that's exactly what it is like I think there was actually like a direct tie to the welfare queens idea and cutting like all of the money and social services to poor people who have children which blows my mind because if you think about it it's foster families who are getting the money (laughs) yeah foster families are they're getting the money yes yes and like you know like I'm sure some, you know, I'm sure people, you know, some people use the money for, to, to pay for like kids needs, but you know, I'm sure there's a lot who don't, who just use it as income, you know? Right. And it's a varied system. Like I remember growing up, my friends who were in foster care had terrible experiences in those houses. And I think I've told the story before, like my stepmother was not nice to me. And, uh, one time she, I told her I was going to call CPS and tell them. And she handed me a phone and she's like, I'll dial for you. Do you think foster home's going to be better than this? And I knew she was right. I thought about my friends in foster care situations and I was like, no, they have it. They have it horrible. They have it awful there. But I also was talking to one of the trainers at our gym who's from Fresno, same hometown as me. She also was raised in foster home. And she's like, oh, my foster house is amazing. Like I, it was like a big family. Like everyone was like a brother and sister. People didn't come or go very often. I stayed there for years and I really, really loved it. So it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, it's not like everybody involved in this process is like an evil, bad person, but it is one of those things where it's a systemic failing that we need to improve. It yeah, seems like. and to me, it just creates situations that could be rife with abuse, especially when mon- money enters the situation. Right. And like, it's just, it's so difficult, like, placing, to me, like, placing children with you know, in a situation that they're way more likely to be abused. Right. Yeah. And you said that like foster care has like what a 30% higher rate. I think it's like 36% versus 20%. Yeah. Compared to a traditional family structure for your, uh, I mean, even, even regardless, it's just like, it's just like what, I mean, to me, if it were just about like, we got to make sure that like all the children like have like good homes and stuff, you'd be like, okay, well, first of all, we give, you know, parents money, we give them training if they want to, we give free medical care, we do, you know, subsidized housing, and, but no, it's not about that. No, it's not. It's it's capitalism and colonization. Yeah, and it's about, it's about keeping, like, people who can have kids, like, in control. Like, it, it wants to create, it wants to keep the patriarchal system alive, and it seems like, Sometimes when I say that, I'm like, is it really that simple? Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of, like, I, I keep just coming back to it where it's like, 
people do not want to change that system. And I, and you know, maybe I just don't understand people or it's just like, to me, it's just like, a lot of people are just like, well, that's just how it is. I think that's the thing. I think it's like, we're so entrenched in the system. People can't imagine anything different, anything different. Yeah. Even when you point out, it's like, it seems like a lot of the system, like also pressures families of color to like assimilate to white culture in a way that makes sense for like cps who shows up at their door and has this like preconceived notion of what like a safe and good house is but it's based on this like white idea of like the nuclear family and like the patriarchy like how like um one of the native adoptees was talking about how like people would come to their house and be like oh well it's multi-generational housing so that's that's neglect and it's just wild because you're like, well, no, that's just something in our culture we do. But if you don't want CPS to take your kids, all of a sudden you can't live in multi-generational housing, which means like denying a huge part of your cultural experience to fit into like the white nuclear family narrative. Yeah. And it's just like, I know, you know, it's just like, uh, like I know people want to help, but it's like sometimes like the help that you can give is just so not like, uh, <laughs> heroic looking you know yes. it's not I hate using this word it's not sexy right to be you like, can't be a savior yeah it's just like I like if for example like be like I want to make sure that all the money that's taken out of my um taxes actually goes to creating a system where children are like well taken care of and like you know we create systems where if kids don't have relatives who can take care of we find another place that like works as best as it can for mm-hmm. them but that's like not the thing. It's just like, you know, or like it's or it's just like maybe we need to think about like how child care for all children is set up in our society. Yeah. And then, it you know, maybe we need to think of like, I don't know, just different ways to do things, because it seems like a lot of the family nuclear family structure that's particularly set up like here in the U.S. Um, really causes a lot of tragedy. It really does, because then it's like, okay, well, let's say you pursue the nuclear family structure, you're not living in multi-generational housing, you're separated from your community, and then your relationship fails. So now you're a single parent with children. What do you do with your kids when you go to work? Yeah. What are you supposed to do? There's nowhere. There's no option. There's no option in society. I mean, yeah, I think think it's an interesting thing to think about, just as... Roe v. Wade, you know, being overturned and how so many people are like, what's the problem? Just just choose adoption, you know? And we see that it's not... Adoption opens up a whole set of other problems that need to be solved. It itself is not a solution for what to do with a baby. And I think that's the thing we view it as. We're like, we view it all through the lens of commodifying a child rather than caring for a child. Or like what a child can do for you rather than what you can do for a child. Exactly. So is that it? That's our episode on adoption. Kenna's back. <laughs> and I'm torturing you with <laughs> a really gnarly subject matter. Is there anything else we should add? Mm-hmm. All right, that's it. Adoption. Choose adoption with a lot of caveats. <laughs> right? Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you can find us there at patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. For $2 a month, you can get access to roughly two-ish bonus episodes per month. A buck an episode, not too pricey. Uh, but if not, that's all right. We're just happy you're here. 